Welcome to the Best Picture cast. I'm your host, Kieran B. I completed my goal of watching every Oscar Best Picture winner ever and decided to start a podcast to review each one. Each episode myself and revolving co-hosts will discuss, assess, and evaluate a different Best Picture winner with the goal to establish a ranking for the entire list. This is not a who should have won podcast. We're here to discuss the inner circle of movies who took home the crown in their respective years. As a disclaimer, this is an opinion-based podcast and a subjective discussion by movie enthusiasts who don't claim to be trained experts. If we destroy your favorite movie or praise a movie you think is trash, we encourage you to write us in at our email, which is bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. Again, that's bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. You can check us out on all of our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd. That's going to be at bestpicturecast, at bestpicturecast at any of our social media accounts. And we're back to start gear three. That's right. Last week, you heard us uh, celebrate our second anniversary. And now it's time to clear the slate and start a new year here. And we're doing so on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day 2022, we picked a, uh, a, a nice romantic movie out, out into the mix. And it's going to be The English Patient. And I have some, uh, some characters here to talk, to talk with me about this. And I'm going to start off <laughs> with a voice that you hear quite often around here. All too often. Yes, and he has a very special place in my heart. And he is oh. Grant Z. Grant, how are you today? I am doing excellent. I cannot wait to uh, take this sojourn into the desert. Hopefully it ends better than it did for uh, poor uh, Almashi. That's right. And uh, hopefully I won't have to dig you out of any, uh, any mean, Model T Fords buried in yeah, the sand. Yeah, good, good or luck with like all that. that. Yeah. Yes. Okay, and also joining us today, we have uh, two more. And they are joining us from across the country here. We uh, wanted to get a, an authentic couple on our Valentine's Day episode, and we have our favorite couple here at BPC, and that is the Freezers, Adam and Melissa from Below Freezing. Guys, how are we doing out there? Great. Oh, I'm amazing. I'm 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 so glad to be authentic. I yeah. mean, I, I'm really that's all I'm that's all I'm aiming for <laughs> these days. I think days. that's the first time anybody's ever. I know. Said that about I, us. Usually, <laughs> it's disingenuous yeah. or loud or I don't know, but that's great. Authentic. That's I love it. <laughs> The genuine article. <laughs> That's great. Now, you guys are making your return of sorts here. You were on a couple of our preview episodes before, tournament preview episodes, and you've, you've drafted with us before. In fact, you just we just drafted in our rom-com tournament draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys uh, got to experience another BPC draft and, and all, the, all the chaos and madness <laughs> that ensues from there. It, honestly, it was like we felt so amazing at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you mean? I mean, do you mean that we were literally at home? Because we, we certainly were. were. We were literally at home. Yeah. <laughs> and now, Adam, you were here for um, another episode with lots and lots of sand, and that was the Ben Hur episode. So every time it gets sandy over here at BPC, it seems like we invite you into the uh, the mix. He's yeah. 
He's our, he's our desert movie. <laughs> our desert, desert movie. Our expert. desert specialist. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, you know, and it makes sense too because I'm, I'm a big fan of sand. I've always been pro sand. <laughs> so, so I'm really glad that, you know, my interests of movies and sand have really found their home here at BPC. That's great. And I feel like sand can be a divisive topic for people. You know, people don't like sand, but I am a big proponent of sand myself. So we're on the same page to start on this thing. We'll see if things differ from there. Now, Melissa, you, though you're not making your debut on the airways, you're making your debut in the sense of uh, of the best picture winners here. It's your yes, first time tackling so a beat. Always excited to have a new voice on the list. One year ago, we had our first female voices on the list. Mikola and Danielle were on our Braveheart episode. That was exactly a year ago. That was our, our Valentine's Day choice last year, Braveheart. And uh, this year we're, we're going with English patients. So welcome to the mix. I'm excited to have you. Thank you. I want to uh, I want to start off with a little, just I want to ask you guys a little bit about Valentine's Day in general here since we're on the holiday. But, but first, I want you guys to tell everyone about what you guys have going on on your end, on your channels. You have quite a few projects and podcasts going. So why don't you give uh, give people a little taste of where else they can hear you? Well, the, the show that we do together is called Below Freezing. It is a podcast in which we can only talk about movies that have a Rotten Tomatoes critical score of 32% or less. There have been times we have broken that, but generally we don't. Uh, We are also having a romantic-themed month of movies. We literally just released uh, Pearl Harbor, the most romantic movie since The English Patient. And then... um, And then uh, we will be following that up uh, in uh, a little less than two weeks. Um, uh, Funnily enough, with the movie called Valentine's Day, which is a movie I've never seen before. And I'm not, I'm truly kind of uh, dreading. I'm going to be real. I don't, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm excited for it. You guys are you guys are in for a treat with that one. (laughs) Have you seen it? Oh, I saw it in the theaters on on Valentine's Day. Well, so. Good man. Yeah, that's. Thankfully, a blind spot for me. So in addition to the uh, the hilarious Below Freezing podcast that you guys have going, Adam, you have a, a new project that you've started up here too. Yeah, we're about uh, we're about four weeks in uh, to Rewind 2552, where the conceit of that show is that uh, each week we talk about the newest and highest grossing film, uh, whatever that happened to be, each week at the U.S. box office. Um, so we're getting through the the quote-unquote dumpuary months where some of the movies are not uh, oh, yeah. spectacular. But the last few recording sessions have been great. Uh, I'll tease them kind of a little bit. Recorded with a friend of ours, uh, Mike at Cinemusts, on a, um, a true-life mafia story. Uh, recorded with another friend of the show, Zeta Short, who was amazing. Tune in to Zeta's episode, if not for <laughs> any other reason than to hear her talk about her dad and his expl- I it is worth it just for the five minutes she talks about her dad. It's fucking amazing. And then um, noted. Last night I recorded with uh, somebody I haven't talked to in probably eight or nine years about maybe like big statement, maybe the funniest movie of the '90s. I don't know, uh, wow. but a really really great conversation about uh, a comedy that hasn't dated uh, painfully, which is awesome. So yeah, that's hard. Yeah, that's but, great. And Grant, you were on for the Beverly Hills. Ninja, right? That's right. Yeah, and that's Perfect. live right now. Yes, Go it check is. that out. I've renamed some of the awards, and um, we now have one that's called the Great White Ninja Award for the most problematic <laughs> storyline. So uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and our, our very own Joey R. was on an episode that's aired already. That was uh, The yeah. Relic. Yeah. 
I, I encourage people see the relic. It was an entertaining watch. Yeah, and and a definitely both great episodes. I had a, I mean this. I I tune in every Thursday for wh- whether I've seen the movie or not. It's a great great little walk back in time. Yeah. And now, if I'm not mistaken, so the the English patient would have already come out in the 2552 world, right? So you'd be leading into into the Oscar season that it was being rewarded. Yeah. So, Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the episode that we recorded last night, literally uh, one of the things that happened was the Academy Awards for the films of 1996. So the English Patient and, and, and the uh, the storyline of the recording just won all of the Oscars. Wow. Okay. All right. Okay. So this so this episode we're recording right now can serve as like a prequel to, to uh, Rewind 2552. Indeed. Indeed. The world you can of listen 96. listen to that and it goes... That's right. Did they go and and start back from the beginning? And uh, I was on. I'll, I'll be on at some point to talk a certain Clint Eastwood movie. I know you like to tease your, you like to tease your film, so I won't. I won't throw it out there just yet. No, but we no, we we can't tease it. We'll just say that Eastwood uh, has absolute power in the movie. So yeah, he does. Yes, yeah. yes, and it corrupts absolutely. I and if, he, does. if somebody so, could yeah. get the title from that, then you know, good for you. But was yes, it, was I love it. Gran Torino. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so on Valentine's Day, and we have a we have a, a real a real life authentic couple here with us. I feel like Valentine's Day is like kind of like a controversial American holiday, and it just kind of ticks a lot of people off. Where you have like couples couples get stressed out because like oh I gotta buy another gift for this for this that, and then single people are stressed out because they're like ah oh, I don't you know here I am being single. How is Valentine's Day for you guys? Do you have any funny stories to tell from over the years? You guys have been a couple for a very long time, so you probably roll your eyes at it at this point. I don't want to speak for you at all. <laughs> I'm like, do we have funny stories? I'm sure we do. <laughs> Can I remember them? I don't know. I know I think We've been together since high school. So I'm sure it was like a thing in high school. Like, I feel like only the first couple years in our relationship did we actually Like the, the stress of gifts or yeah. chocolates or... I mean, I still because get you. Because he did. It was like the first... Stuff. Yeah, he gets me flowers. But like the first year, I remember you got me a bouquet of roses the second year we dated he got me two and like he gave me Uh-oh. one at school and then he dropped that's a bad, off that's work a, and then that's a bad precedent to set yeah he, he <laughs> well listen put, when you're all of 19 years old you don't know that much about stuff yeah, so that's true that's true um, another year he left me i was at a cheer competition he left oh, me roses yeah. at my house really early in the morning and then he left me roses on my car because it was parked at a park and ride and then i got so a, things are escalating t- here and then we got married and I think it's mostly the the, <laughs> it's the kids stuff though. Like the last 7 years it's like I don't know if we even do do we do cards anymore for Valentine's Day? If we I remember? Think we stopped because actually a couple years ago oh. we got the exact the exact same card for each other. <laughs> and I thought I packed my like I went to go open his card and it was the exact same card that I got him and I was like, "Oh my god, what was I think? I was like, "What? How much did I have to drink?" Like I even wrote my name on the outside of the envelope like I was so confused and then we it's because like we felt like we already got all the other cards I think at that point we were like you know no and now it's (laughs) Adam comes home with flowers for the girls he just brings all three of us flowers yeah right yeah so now there's this roses going in every direction here Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) now Grant you've been you've been with with your wife for quite a while too how is is it is your is your Valentine's Day a similar thing there too or do you have anything it's it's pretty it's pretty similar um I'll get her flowers and I'll get Maddie get my my daughter some flowers we don't do cards maybe we'll go out and I think we might get a sitter go out to dinner but that's that's really it it's 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 low-key it's it's just not worth the aggravation yeah. yeah. I really I mean there there's a lot of pressure like when you're younger there's a lot of pressure on it. And then when you get older you're like, "Oh, it's just 
cares? <laughs> just right. just another like like you know, have a nice dinner or, or whatever. But it's not like this end all be all kind of thing. Now, as a, as a single person, I find that that like at this stage. That becomes like a pretty good like bar party night, believe it or not, because you have like a bunch. And I don't oh, even sure. mean in a, I don't even mean in like a dating, like go out and meet yeah. somebody. Sense it's just a lot of people who don't give a shit, you know. Yeah. So it's like, all right, it's Valentine's Day, we're gonna go, and it's always a fun night, regardless of what of what goes on. So now, yeah, so, makes sense. Kieran, are you an yes. auth- are you an authentic single person? I am. Uh, ooh, I don't know. If I can- <laughs> maybe I'll just maybe I'll just pass on that. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know when this is going to air. You know, I don't know who's hearing it. One, these these podcasts are, are not supposed to take them. We, so, this is our first. This is our first plead the fifth we've ever gotten. Oh, man. Yeah. So. Can you can you just can, I'll just edit can we that vocally out. redact that? I redact that from the record. Well, he'll, he'll actually edit. We're gonna, we're gonna he, he yeah, we'll edit it. We'll edit it. We'll edit it. That's right. So out there, whether you're single or uh, or with that special someone, and you're stressing over the holidays, just remember you can pick your own tomorrow. Now here's Vanessa Williams with Save the Best for Last. <laughs> that was my best Delilah impression there, Melissa. I oh know, a uh, little callback. Yes. To, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. The city lights. <laughs> the city lights. <laughs> All right, we're not here to talk about Delilah or Valentine's Day or being authentically single. Or, rom- we- <laughs> or romance. <laughs> or, yeah, well, okay, oh boy, here we go. Still firing shots yeah. already. We're here to talk about the English patient which was quite the bell of the ball at the 96, 97 Oscars. And it was probably really, you know, the talk of the town at the time. I uh, want to hear what you guys think about this and not, and not just from that sense, just where this is in your English, English patient experience, you know, whether it's the first watch, what it is. First, I want to talk about what we're drinking today. And uh, we'll start by kicking that one out to Seattle. And uh, Adam, why don't you get things going? So we wanted to we wanted to be as classy as this movie. So um, I got us I got us a nice Italian red wine, uh, considering okay. how much of the movie takes place in Italy. So I have a a, a Carpenero, uh, uh, uh dry red wine. Um, it's from 2016. Uh, I don't think it actually tells me exactly where in Italy it is from, but it is Italy. I know that because the little imported symbol was on here. So uh, that's what we're drinking over here. Perfect. Melissa, you have the same thing. You're share, sharing the old bottle. I, yes, we are sharing. How romantic! I that, love it. that 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 is that screams authentic couple. Authentic right romance. Yes. Yes. Grant, what do you have to here today? Uh, I'm going old school. Actually, this was a gift uh, for Christmas. I got a Mont. I got a six pack of uh, Montauk Driftwood Ale. Very nice, the Driftwood. It's uh, one of my one of my favorites from Montauk, and they don't really see it a lot. Yeah, so you have the Driftwood. So Montauk is a brewery that we obviously feature quite a bit here. Quite if you've a bit. Listened before. Yep. I uh, so we're starting starting the new uh, the new BPC calendar year here with uh, with Montauk on your end. I'm starting with a brewery that I've not only ever had before, but I've never even heard of before. Nice. It's from New Jersey, and the brewery is called the Bolero Snort Brewery. And it's got a little uh, bull logo on there, sort of. See that there? So the snort is the bull, I guess, the bull snorts with a little bull ring there. And it's the uh, Crushable Citra Waiti. So it's a it's a, it's an IPA. It's a cool, juicy banger there. If you Just, want to like oh. Just like me. Just like me. Wow. Okay. Um, and it's, yeah, 4.4% alcohol there. So it's nice and light. That's why I chose it. But um, yeah, so that's what we're drinking here today. Let's talk about what we just watched 
you know, throughout the week. For me, it was within the last 20, 24 hours, I, I got two watches in, which was, I think that comes out to about 70% of my last 24 hours. <laughs> we'll start with uh, with uh, you, Grant. What What is your first experience with the English patient? Was it this week? Was it uh, before? The, Latir- the first time I watched it was Friday. Okay, so this is a first watch. Yeah, first watch for okay. me. I, I, I subjected my, my poor wife to this movie. My wife who hates, she hates period pieces and she hates Colin Firth. Yeah, which is not good. <laughs> not a good and, and she was just <laughs> miserable for three hours watching this movie. Uh, the, the, the poor thing. Really, my first memory of the English patient is that Seinfeld episode. Right, yes. Where, yes. where Elaine just is the only one in the city that hates, that hates the English patient. And that's kind, of, that's kind of the only thing I knew about this movie until... I watch it. Yeah, uh, hilarious. Uh, now, uh, Adam, have you have you seen that? You said you're not a big Seinfeld guy. So, yeah, have you seen that episode before? No, I, I I can't say that I have. And I I was I was I was thinking today during my office hours, maybe I'll fit it in. And then I looked at my desk. I'm like, no, nah, there's no fucking way I'm fitting that in. <laughs> <laughs> well, they catch you up because it's uh, it's. A, a classic episode. Basically, what the the gist of it is, Elaine is on a date with her boyfriend, and there's two movies to watch. One is like this goofy, a low rent comedy. Yeah, just like yeah. as something that would easily be on Below Freezing or perhaps even Worst Picture Cast. But probably, and that's what she wants to see, and it's sold out. And he wants to see the English Patient. So you know, she rolls her eyes. I guess we're going to see the English Patient. She leaves, and she's disgusted, but she hates it. She thought it was terrible, and everyone leaving the theater is enamored. And he and thinks they're crying, it's great. and they're yeah, yeah. Essentially, she loses. He breaks up with her. She loses her job, and she can't like get her job back until she flies to Tunisia to uh, reflect on what what she missed about the English patients. Everyone around her is just can't understand why she hates it. They stopped she, serving her at the diner. Yeah, she, she was she was screaming, she was in the theater screaming, "Just die already! Just die already!" <laughs> It's yeah, so, it's, yeah. It's, worth checking out. It's for a great episode. Maybe yeah. we'll watch that tonight yeah. after we're recording. All right. So how about how about you guys? When, when was your first experience with uh, with the English patient? Was it this time around? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start because it's gonna lead into into this. So I the first time I watched this was at some point uh, probably my freshman sophomore year of high school because I was definitely trying to plow through. Um, not just the best picture winners, but the best picture nominees from the 90s. So at some point, I subjected my 14-year-old brain to the movie and probably missed a lot of what was going on. Then at some point when I was in college, maybe maybe when I was in grad school, um, I watched it again kind of to see, like, I, I didn't have fond memories of it. Uh, now, Melissa... I would say has seen this movie before as well, but I think the answer is that this was her first cognizant watch of the film. I'm pretty sure she fell asleep when I watched it the second time. Yeah, this was my first time watching it. He says I've seen it before, and we have this debate about many movies, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, I like fell asleep before yeah, the movie started. If you're in the REM cycle, it doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah. So for me, uh, this was a first watch when I when I got to it on my hunt to see the Best Picture winners, and it was toward the very end. So, I mean, it was one that I had put off along with Out of Africa. The two of them I had kind of grouped together in ones that like, all right, you know, here's the runtime. I have an idea what this is. I I... It won the Oscar around the time where I was very much watching the awards, and I remembered the Billy Crystal intro and that whole that whole deal there. So everything I knew of it was it sweeping the Oscars, but never saw it. Did not touch it or revisit it. So this this week was a true second time seeing it. I had had not seen bits and pieces or anything about it since. So I, I watched it once back then, 
And I watched it here uh, here this week for what kind of, you know, amounts, even if it's been two years, a lot of it becomes the first time, too, because I don't think this is a movie that's easy to fully grasp everything when you're watching it for the first time. And judging from the tone of some of you guys, I have a feeling like I've walked into a bit of an ambush on this one. So I guess we'll wait. We'll wait and see. But first impressions, guys, you want to like, so kick it off to you guys before we fully deep dive. You just want to kick some some early thoughts out there. I think that there was a uh, quite a phenomenal cast and crew assembled for this movie. And I think uh, some of the craftspeople involved are doing some phenomenal work. Um, this is truly a, a, a movie to behold like a, a movie to see and I, I I will say and I'm, I know you're gonna you'll get to this in in the rundown but I will say uh I don't think it's uh a mistake that it didn't win adapted screenplay is where I'll kind of leave off Grant how about uh, how about you over there I think what Adam was alluding to is quite a spectacle it's a very grand movie but I feel that this movie if I could use two words to describe it is uh bloated and dry Hmm. Okay. It's very long, and if you're going to be this long and this self-indulgent, it needs to be more interesting. Interesting in itself. Okay. Melissa, I'm going to kick it off to you with some thoughts before I uh, before I open my defense attorney briefcase. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I think the, the spectacle of all of it is beautiful. Gosh, it has great moments, but as an overall, the, I, I was kind of I kept asking Adam throughout the movie I was like this one and then I kept going like what was it up against because I was I was just I was a little like confused perplexed on like how um (laughs) 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 am I just throwing all my cards out there That's fine. No, no, that's rip. that's okay. That's okay. Well, I think it's it's best to find where everyone stands here, and then we'll you know then we'll we'll go about the the twelve angry men process. Um, no, okay. So listen, for me, this movie is a long movie, and it is it is too long. It, it certainly is too long. And Grant, by calling it bloated and self indulgent, you're not using harsh adjectives whatsoever. I mean that that is certainly a um, a valid take. I think with this movie, and I'm glad that we've already referenced the the Seinfeld stuff already, because I think with the English patient, you're either in Elaine or a Peterman. I think that just kind of is. And Peterman was her boss yeah. who was taken back by the beauty and can't, un- can't see how she doesn't understand the passion, you know? And I, I think I tend to lean more into the Peterman side of things is just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in this movie that this time around, I, I was able to take a step back and appreciate, particularly about how he chose to tell the story what he refrained from doing in the process and in some of the craftsmanship that Adam, you referred to when we talk about the camera work, we talk about the, the score and, and, and some of the nuts and bolts. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that as we go. It should be interesting. Are we ready to deep dive this thing? Any, uh, any, any words to, to throw out there before we uh, take the plunge? Yes. Let's, let's kamikaze right. Colin Firth down onto this movie. <laughs> Nose down into the sandstorm. Here we go. All right. The year is 1996. And in the 1996 presidential election, we saw President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore defeat Bob Dole and VP candidate Jack Kemp, as well as third party candidate Ross Perot to win re-election and to head into his second term. Clinton carried 31 states and won the election 
379 electoral votes to Dole's 159. Clinton was portrayed on Saturday Night Live by Daryl Hammond. Now, I ask you guys, does anyone remember who portrayed Bob Dole on Saturday Night Live? I do. Grant has it. Do you guys remember oh, who portrayed no. Bob Dole on SNL? It wasn't. Uh, no, I don't. I was going to say Dana Carvey, but that was Bush. Um, I don't know. Mm-mm. Grant, you have it? It was Norm MacDonald. It was indeed the late Norm MacDonald who just passed away this this uh, previous year. He did a great job. Uh, Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Bob Dole. Yes, yes. So that one, that one stuck out to me. Also, I know, Adam, you're a big Simpsons Simpsons guy. Is that Adam and Melissa, you're both Simpsons people? That is very true. Yeah, so there's a particular Simpsons episode I remember that I think it was like the Treehouse of Horror that came out right before that. You have the two aliens who come down to Earth and they they take over Bob Dole and Bill Clinton's bodies. And their whole thing is like, now you only have two people to pick from. So will you pick one of us? And either way, we'll take over the the world and rule the world. And uh, one of the guys goes, I I do believe I'll, I'll vote a third party. And they go, go ahead. Throw your votes away. Ha, 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 ha. And it shows Ross Perel punching the, hot, the top of his hat out. Gah! A classic Simpsons moment there, uh, I remember. That's the first thing that popped out when I thought of this, this election. The 1996 World Series is not as fond a memory for me. Last week in the 57 episode, we talked about the Milwaukee Braves defeating the Yankees in the World Series. The script is flipped here this time. This was the New York Yankees defeating the defending champion Atlanta Braves in six games. Quite painful World Series for me as a big Braves fan. I have my 2021 championship Braves shirt on right here today. Uh, was not feeling in the celebrating mode back then. Uh, unfortunately, Adam, you're going to have to sit here and listen to me talk about this again because I think that you, you've already had to do that once on the Rewind uh, 2552, where... Oh, yeah, good. That's, so it's, uh, it was, uh, you asked me what I was doing around that time, and I think um, morning was what I was, was, yeah, what I was doing. Sul- it was, yeah, a lot of sulking, a lot of, uh, a lot of tough stuff here. It uh, was the Yankees winning the World Series in, in 1996. The town was going wild around here on Long Island and throughout all the boroughs and uh, the state. They win their first championship since 1978, so they were cer- certainly ready to burst. It was their number 23 of their current 27 championship wins. The Braves outscored the Yankees 16-1 to in the first two games, which were played in the Bronx. The tide turned, however, when the series headed to Atlanta, where the Yankees would win three in a row before returning home to clinch the series. The Yankees' road stand was highlighted by a Game 4 late-inning three-run home run by backup catcher Jim Leritz off of Atlanta closer Mark Wohlers, tying a game that the Braves had led 6-1. to Getting all this, Melissa? Well, oh, I'm just, I don't remember any of this, so I'm just, uh, I'm I, soaking it all in. Well, you know, I, no, I have it's fine. I have a little Mariners trivia I'd like to maybe drop that into this like conversation. The only Let's do it. That's the only baseball Lay it on to us. follow. Uh, so this is a year after uh, the my oh my uh, big ol' Edgar Martinez double and Griffey runs the bases. This is the year after that. Um, but what I found out was that the Seattle Mariners that year uh, led the majors in runs, doubles, RBIs, and slugging, capped off wow. by uh, an Alex Rodriguez hell of a year that he had. That would have been his rookie year, probably, yes, right? Yes, it was. Yep. Wow. Yeah. What, what might have been there for them, Yep. Uh, but wasn't. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> what also might have been for what were the returning champion Braves at the time, who also won in 95, Atlanta had more hits, more runs, more home runs, and a lower team ERA than the Yankees throughout the series, but still lost the World Series. 
It was the first World Series to feature the World Series logo on the side of both teams' hats. You know, we all see it today where you see the, yeah. you know, the 1996 World Series. That was the first World Series to do that. That's so funny. That Great merchandising so idea. Yeah. It, yeah. it does. You would have thought they would have thought that right. earlier to get people to buy the It took them a while to get their shit together, I they guess. They should have had a cricket. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. Game five was the final game played at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. The Braves would move into a stadium that was built for the Olympics the following season, which would become known as Turner Field. Turner Field closed its doors in 2016. So there are two stadiums later already. Yankees were managed by Hall of Famer Joe Torre. The World Series yeah. MVP was Yankees closer John Wetland. Ooh. Hall, yeah, he hasn't aged well. Uh, talk about things that haven't left 1996 97. John Wetland would have Do yourself a favor, guys, and Google John Wetland. Or don't. That, or don't, because it's, it's marred with controversy now. Real R. Kelly-ish. Um, <laughs> yes. and, um, I wrote that down, <laughs> yeah. and then the second you said that, I crossed his name out. <laughs> for a more res- respectable list of players, um, Hall of Famers who participated in this series included for the Yankees, Wade Boggs, Tim yeah. Raines, Derek Jeter, and Mariano Rivera. For the Braves, Tom Glavin, Chipper Jones, Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, and manager Bobby Cox. God, what a fucking pitching team. God damn, the Braves had a good pitching rotation. My God. They that did. Was, I don't Matt, Maddox, Matt, Maddox was the filthiest pitcher ever. He really was. I do Just not follow filth. baseball other than, like I said, the Mariners. But like that's the yeah, sure. sport that I just don't follow. But every name you just said, I somehow knew. There you go. That's good. They were, they were, yeah, they were, they were that team good. At the same time. Those wow. last, those last four were. Damn. Yeah. 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 Um, it's funny. I think the last time we recorded for the, which would have been for the Ben Hur episode, Adam, the last time we recorded with you, the Mariners were in town playing the Yankees, and they tonight. Were. The Kraken are on Long Island playing the Islanders. How about that for a little BPC symmetry? Oh, they're in Queens or in Belmont? We have not yeah. been to a Kraken game yet, but... Go hockey! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember our summer tip days? We used to go league? watch double-A hockey nearby. Yeah. Love oh, it. that's fun, though. They are aggressive. <laughs> sure. Go especially I, I, in the minor leagues. That's because they have to. That's it's like slap shot. You need to fight nothing, to get attendance. Nothing, they got nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready for the number one song of any funny Macarena stories, anyone? Does anyone have anything to add? Did anybody? I just, I just remember that going on at every block party I went to that summer. It was grating, absolutely grating. I just remember being in the fifth grade, and they taught us that and the electric slide, mm-hmm. and it was part of our PE class. Yes. Ooh, wow. Okay. I do remember that. Wow. Mr. Austin yes. taught us the. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on in the Pac Northwest these days? Jeez. So we could, oh, do, or in the 90s, mean, I we could do a mean Macarena and we could do a, a mean electric slide. So when Adam and I attend weddings and those songs come on, I mean, it's electric. Are, I love it. And we are definitely Yogi, Yogi. in the front of the everybody dancing. And another, another billboard hit that year was also the, the Come On Ride the Train and Ride It, which I think had a dance to oh, it. Yes. Quad City right? DJs. Yeah. Quad the Quad City, City DJs. Very nice. I love so it was that. a lot of a lot of dancing along there in that one. Um, no, do you think if either of you got pr- got pressured or got, got tested on the Macarena, would you be able to do it yep. at this point? Thousand, yeah. You I still could. could. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, the, yeah. so your elementary school... I could do it. Yeah. It worked. It yeah. worked. Yep. They've, they've got you to do it. I thought maybe I could, and then I watched the music video and was like, oh, nope. I forgot about touching your ass. I forgot about that one. Oh I thought gosh. everything was out in front and then the top of the head. You got to touch your hips. We will yeah. you gotta, record you go. ourselves. Da- yes, we're oh, going to. We'll right. record ourselves dancing to it. Like, 
we'll put the music on and we'll just see who who remembers it better. But I think amazing. Another reason to follow us on on social media. We'll, um, we'll yes. share it with At you best guys. Picture cast. Yeah, every BPC person do it. The sad part is, I think we're both gonna like nail it. <laughs> That's amazing. And if if you want some great viewing, go out and watch the Macarena music video because it is just fantastic. The two old guys in suits there are absolute stone cold legends. Yeah. A lot, uh, great of, lot of intense now, zooms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but now I want to ask here too, as we do a little a little test here with this. By Los Del Rios, do we do we know can, how are you guys with your Spanish? Do, do you know what Los Del Rios means in English? What is how does it translate? No, I, I know. I got, you got it. Got it, Like of the rivers. Do those those from the river. Pretty yeah. good. Yes, Los Del Rio. Now uh, and and the chorus there. Which is just the ha ba 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 No, I don't, no one really knew it. You know, I don't, I, I don't have I the. I was really the, hoping yeah. you were just going to fucking go for it. I have the, the oh, translation I'm disappointed. here. No, I do. I would want to say, like, I, I had, I was curious as if the Macarena is still like a relevant thing. Like, people, so I, I texted in our, in a, the work group chat, the youngest person on it is 21. So I asked, does he know what, does the word Macarena mean anything? And he knew, he knew that it was a dance. He goes, yeah. A one e and a two e and a three macarena is what he typed back. I'm like, those are absolutely not the lyrics, but uh, but sure. But yeah, so this is what how the lyrics translate of the chorus. I have it right here. Are you ready? Give your body joy, macarena. That your body is to give joy and good thing. Give your body joy, macarena. Hey, macarena. So that's that's what it means. There you go. And uh, macarena, in case you're wondering, is a Spanish female name that comes from the Greek for the word macarios, which means happy. So there we go. Other top Billboard hits include Mariah Carey's Always Be My Baby. Yep. That's a good tune. That's a good tune. Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman. Yeah. Love that song. Personal favorite, The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and oh, Harmony. Oh, ba 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 bone bone bone. Yeah, fucking A. Great music video. Introduced me to that song. Yeah. Yeah. That song is amazing. Uh, Ironic by Alanis Morissette. Huge, huge hit. And uh, Because You Loved Me, performed by Celine Dion Sorry. and written by the great Diane Warren. So yep. there you go. Other, other big hits there. God, year. I miss 90s music so much. I know. I Tell really me. do. You know, it was. I was looking at like that list of songs as I scrolled down deeper and deeper. I'm like, oh my God, this song, this song. Do you remember um, Change the World by Eric Clapton? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, what a tune. I that's, saw that today. I'm like, that's oh, from, I got That's from Phenomenon. Adding that to the playlist. That's, that's right. Phenomenon. That's from the movie Phenomenon. So The English Patient was the Best Picture winner in 1996. It was directed by Anthony Mingella. It was produced by a Miramax and the Weinsteins. We're getting all those controversial characters out there at once. Weinstein's Wetland R. Kelly. (laughs) Adapted screenplay by Anthony Mingella, based on a novel by Michael Ondaatje. Music by Gabriel Yerid. Cinematography by John Seal who also photographed Rain Man, which we've discussed before, Mad Max Fury Road, Witness, and Cold Mountain. Ooh, Mad Max. Film editing by Walter Murch, who was the editor for Apocalypse Now in the conversation, and the art direction was by Stuart Craig and Stephanie McMillan. The English Patient is starring Rafe Fiennes, Juliette Binoche, Chris and Scott Thomas, Willem Dafoe, Naveen Andrews, and Colin Firth. It was nominated for 12 Oscars. It was the winner of nine, including Best Picture, Best Director, Anthony Mangella, Best Supporting Actress, Juliette Binanche, Best Cinematography, John Seal, Film Editing, Walter Mersch, Score, Gabriel Yeard. We have Sound, Art Set Direction, and Costume Design. It was also nominated for, but did not win, Best Actor, Ray Fiennes, Best Actress, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Best Adapted 
screenplay. Okay, so we are, we are here. Um, I wanted to start off, because this is something that you guys do over at Below Freezing. You'll usually, one of the gimmicks that you do over there is that you'll have Melissa guess the, the Rotten Tomato score. But before you do that, you, you read that little synopsis at Rotten Tomatoes, which like, I guess like splices all the, I don't know how they do it. It's, I'm always fascinated it's like, it's by like it. Aggregate, yeah. But I looked at it for this movie and I just thought it was like really poignant. So I'm not going to have you guess any scores or anything, but I just do, do want to read this out. And I think that would be a good place for us to start. So Rotten Tomatoes reads it as, though it suffers from excessive length and ambition, Director Mingella's adaptation of Michael Anjade's novel is complex, powerful, and moving. So I think it gets both of the thoughts from for whichever side you're on, whether you enjoyed it or you didn't, because it definitely suffers from excessive length and ambition. It's hard to argue against that. Um, but I think that for those who like it, I, I think you can defend its complexity, its its power, and its ability to move. So that's at least from my standpoint. What What are your... Adam and Melissa, what are your initial takes on on hearing that little synopsis of it? I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's a bad review at all. I think, I think you're right, and it nails kind of right down the middle on what side somebody's on. I okay, I, I would say that I don't think that this movie is as complex as it wants to be. I actually think this movie wants to be complex, and I don't think that it is. I think. Uh, I think everything's on the surface, and at times, it's way too obvious. Well, it's we, way too on the nose at times. And we did. We did. There were moments where we did specifically, like, have a conversation going, like, why that and not continue going with it? Or not, like, go further down that hole. But they just kind of, like, mention it or whatever, and then they mo- move on to the next. So I, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, so I guess as we go, I'll, I'll ask what, like, some of the moments that, that you, you felt that way with it. Um, Grant, what's your reaction to that? I kind of agree that they, I think they're trying to be more clever than they really are. And I, I understand the, the hypocrisy of me loving Birdman and defending the artist tooth and nail and thinking that this movie is self-indulgent <laughs> and ends up being a bad thing. But at least at least there's something about those movies that um, that at least I find interesting and I find captivating. Yeah, I mean, while you named three movies that I would agree are self-indulgent. The artist and Birdman have brevity on their side and the English patient does <laughs> not. This, tr- is a, this, is a, this is a this is a time-consuming uh, ordeal for sure. Now, uh, where I understand what you guys are saying about it wanting to be more complex than it is, I do think though that where it is complex and where it shows its complexities are in the visuals and in the sights and sounds of the movie. So where where the story itself may not be overly complex and may not be that fully dynamic, I think that the setting in which they're 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 playing on, the field that they're playing on and what what this movie presents to you from a, c- a cinematography standpoint, how they execute the score and a lot of the practical effects and decisions they make in in putting this thing together on screen authentically in the Tunisian desert, I really think give this movie a, a, a badge of honor, in, in my estimation at least. And I don't think that the story is what what we really knocked like a Titanic for. I think there's more to it than, than that, Adam. I, I think that there's, um, I cannot help, and, and Karen, maybe it's because we talked about this on 1001, but there is so much I could not help. One of my first notes was this is just this is a movie trying to be Lawrence of Arabia meets Casablanca. And yeah, I actually found all of the um, 
the setting, like the 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 desert of it all, kind of distracting. I get and I get that uh, it's all about you know they're in the desert for for map making and it's cartography and it's it's all of that stuff and it's it's pivotal to Amashi's character, but I could not help but see all of the other movies that this was influenced by. And that's where I, I actually, outside of some of the stuff that Walter Murch did, um, I'm not I'm not as sold on the setting of the whole thing as as I think we're we're meant to be. I think we're meant to be sucked into that world. And I'm very much like, ah, okay. Okay. And and you know that brings up and Grant, you referenced the artist, and I was pretty hard on the artist in that episode and being derivative of the Billy Wilers and the and the singing of the rains of the sure. of the world. And this is absolutely one thousand percent clearly influenced by David Lean. There's no there's no other way around it. I mean, you can't watch this movie if you've seen Lawrence of Arabia and not think of all the influences there, or even if you want to talk about Brief Encounter, because there's a ton of Brief Encounter in this too. And it's it's almost a lot of this is Brief Encounter in the desert. So the derivative nature of it is absolutely there, and and I get that. That being said, I, I don't think anything they did here was simple, and I don't think anything they did here was cheap. I get it from a um, you know for someone who's viewing film film in the context of of the century that came before this, how you can point out here and point out there, and I, I don't think that Anthony Mangella is a great director. I mean, this is clearly the greatest work from a very a very competent, solid director who had some great ideas. And to be completely honest, we have not seen his other work. I haven't seen Cold Mountain. I haven't seen Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, but he really wasn't there much. Unfortunately, you know, he passed away at a youngish age. So in his early 50s, there, there could have been work to come beyond that. In listening to some of his thoughts in this movie, and I have a couple quotes that I'll at, at some point kick out to you and, and get your thoughts on. I do think that this movie was well-intentioned. And I don't think that he was out there trying to do something that he wasn't aspiring to be great or, or trying to, to, to ape someone else, um, though a lot of his techniques were certainly derivative. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you undergo a project like this half-assing it. Mm. I just think he just kind of fell short of his of his vision. That that's basically where where it come, what it comes down to me is is that like a Titanic, you kind of brought that up before, where the vibe of it and the visuals and everything like that and this sweeping nature of it, it kind of masks this plot that's that could be way shorter. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be as as long as it is. And, and and quite and I'll just put this out. I'll just put it out here now. I think this movie focused on the wrong couple. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Melissa, you, you said kind of in your intro there that, you know, you were watching this and you were you were confused as to why I won the Oscar. What were some of the moments that led you to that to that state of, of confusion? I mean, this movie in a whole, the the music, the cinematography, like I loved it. It was it was beautiful. It was well executed. I mean, I'm a, I'm a costume designer. I thought that everything was like period on point. But the plot was just not. At, it was not at the level of what everything else was, and mm. in my opinion. And I, kn I noticed it early on. Like, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, we're 30, 40, now we're 50 minutes into this movie. Okay, we're two hours into this movie, and it's like, <laughs> wow, what's, where, where is it going to get you? And um, I do have, like, specific scenes that were intriguing and that I liked, but it was like, oh, my God. Sure. Why couldn't we get more of those? It just, yeah. it just didn't seem as a best picture everything about the movie was 
at best picture level, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't think you should get best picture because your cinematography is amazing. Well, oh, can we? Okay, sorry. That, like, that, no, no, no. You mentioned <laughs> something. So, Karen, you sent me a, a side message. Uh, and I, can, I don't know if we can bring this up now or not, but you said. Yeah, this is a great time to go into it. Yeah, okay, I was, that so, was, I was going there next. Okay, so you mentioned this. Go, you said, like, be, you know, be warned. Uh, the, the phrase Oscar bait might come up in this in this episode. And it got yes. it got me thinking a little bit about okay, well, I think there's there's so much variation to what that can mean. I think recently it's been let's make a movie about a real person that existed and uh boom, Oscar. Uh but for a long time it, it was something else. For this one, it's war plus romance plus exotic location mm -hmm. plus and here's the thing. And I I I I'm going to do this. You're going to bear with me here. Uh, plus sure. Weinstein. Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this. And these are not all of the films that he produced or executive produced. These are just the best picture winners or best picture nominees. It starts in 94 when he's a co-executive producer on Pulp Fiction. Then he wins as an executive producer on The English Patient. He's then nominated again next year in 97 as an executive producer on Goodwill Hunting. He wins as, uh, as solely credited as producer on Shakespeare in Love. In 99, he's nominated for The Cider House Rules as an executive producer. In 2000, he's nominated for Chocolat as an executive producer. He's nominated as an executive producer on all three of the Lord of the Rings movies. He's nominated for Gangs of New York, Chicago, Finding Neverland, The Aviator, Inglorious Bastards, The King's Speech, The Fighter, Silver Linings, Playbook, Django, and most recently, Lying, before we find out that he's the shitbag that he is. But here was the thing. Back then, Harvey Weinstein knew how to play this game better than any fucking producer in Hollywood. Is he a piece of shit? Absolutely. But a lot of those movies I just read are fucking terrible. But that didn't matter. Well, hold on, though. Hold on. I, I want to stop you there, okay? Because what percentage of those movies are terrible? Because there's, a, there's some very good movies on the list. I think one of which is your favorite movie of all time. Oh, Pulp Fiction. Oh, of course. Right. And, and, and that's, I have to, you know, just like the way in which I love uh, Seven and The Usual Suspects, and I have to wrap my mind around the whole Kevin Spaceyness of it all. Knowing that Harvey Weinstein is attached to Pulp Fiction blows. It yeah, does. And, and that's, listen, that stuff's unfortunate. And, and, you know, we could go back to the 50s or the 40s of David L. Selznick or Sam Spiegel or MGM Studios. This, the, the politics of the game and the politics of the awards has been going on long before Harvey Weinstein. So, I mean, there's going to be and there's probably a new wave of that going on right now that we haven't fully honed into yet either. But I mean, out of those movies you listened to, how much of them are, how, what are those movies are truly not good movies, truly not good movies out of what you just listened to? Oh, okay, so, okay, so here's, now this is where the nitpick between spectacle and story comes into right. play. And this was the exact same thing I brought up during Ben-Hur. I was like, would you rather be a movie that won 11 Oscars or would you rather be the movie that won the big five, right? Because to me, right. I would rather not be a spectacle. I would rather not be, a the English patient. I would much rather be a Fargo, which not to get ahead of ourselves, but you know that's that's <laughs> part of the game. Um, but like in in succession, we have Shakespeare in Love, Cider House Rules, Shock a Lot, and then Gangs of New York the next year. And those are all movies that are I think are well made, but I don't think that they are deserving of Best Picture nominees. I don't, and I think he was such a heavy hitter in Hollywood that those movies were nominated because he knew how to play the game. I think every one of those years, there are other movies that could easily have been nominated. At the same time, every year from the start of the Oscars, there's always a chocolate in there. Sure. There's always a Gangs of New York in there. There's always a, a movie that was, that, would, that, that, was, that had a lot of, tacked onto it, and I'm talking about Gangs of New York right now, that got noticed. I mean, we had The Irishman just this, this couple years ago. 
you know, where there's a lot of reasons to nominate it. But once you get there, it doesn't really win anything. A chocolate is like that, you know, the, whatever chocolate is, you know what I'm getting. There's what there's a it's a movie. It's the last one in that probably shouldn't have been nominated. And as we say in the beginning, the not the who should have won podcast thing. So we could argue the politics of the Oscars till till the cows come home. I, I will say, too, though, you know, in talking about fringe nominees and talking about maybe like a Chicago, which was hmm. somewhat of a surprise of the Oscars. There was nothing that was a surprise about The English Patient. I mean, it swept every precursor. It wasn't a surprise whatsoever that this was winning this thing. So you could make the estimation that even without a great campaign, this was at, during that time was, I mean, there was, it, it swept every single precursor and, and pretty much other than the acting categories, pretty much everything within those. A lot of those movies that you listed are not necessarily in the same area, whether it is a King's Speech or a a Chicago or a Gangs in New York. I mean, a lot of those, Shakespeare in Love, I mean, they didn't necessarily sweep everything leading up into it. This one kind of did. Well, and, I, and I should say that he, um, on, on The English Patient, he is credited as an executive producer. The great Saul Zanitz is the producer of the movie, whose other movies, he's only produced a couple other movies, uh, but they're biggies. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. So the actual sole, like, producer of the movie I think has, uh, there's more, um, what's the word, esteem behind it. The reason that I had messaged you initially about the Oscar bait thing is I figured it was going to come. But I was listening to you talk about it. I don't remember which one of your episodes was, but Dallas Buyers Club came up. And I think that you kind of dismissed that as Oscar bait. And I, I mean, I don't think that that's a bad movie at all. I mean, I personally, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the performance. Did they only make that movie to win an award? Or were there other reasons? I mean, is just because a story is being told that probably lends toward awards and Oscars, does that story not then get told? Or I, I, I just, I just, I wonder sometimes about throwing out the term Oscar bait. Does it just, does, is it, is it too much of a dismissive term or does a story like the Dallas Buyers Club story, you know, is that, can that be made without it being dismissed in that, in that manner? I think it's both. It's a fine line because there's a movie like Dallas Buyers Club, which is based on, on, on real people and real events um, and I found it to be a little too, and trust me, you guys can throw shit on me in like four seconds when I say what I'm going to say, <laughs> but it feels a lot like, oh, well, this is McConaughey just wanting to win his Oscar. But now that I've said that, I'm going to go out and say that I really liked King Richard, which in its way is just a vehicle for Will Smith to win his Oscar. And at that point, it's all about what grabs you and a movie about a father-daughter relationship grabbed me more than a movie about Matthew McConaughey as a Texan. Um, it just did. So I, is Dallas Buyers Club a bad movie? No. Is it my favorite? No. And and it's it's a real cup of tea kind of thing. But what's the chicken and the egg would be my question. Like, did they make that movie for Matthew McConaughey or did they make the movie and cast Matthew McConaughey? I don't personally know the order. I didn't you know. I had a tough time researching this, this four hour movie. Here and today. It's, <laughs> it's tough because a lot of, a lot of actors now have production companies and somewhere down the road, I'm sure McConaughey had his own money tied up in the movie because that's just how it is now. If there's a project you want to do as an actor, you're funding part of it so that you can do it. Grant, what, what, what do you think about any of that? I try to stay away from politics. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I should right say a lot of what we're... Cheers. Cheers, Grant. Uh, Cheers. <laughs> a lot of how this this podcast was conceived here was to take the movies and the performances for what they are 
and to just kind of view what's in front of you. And when I was watching Dallas Buyers Club, I wasn't thinking about Matthew McConaughey's agent. I wasn't thinking about the other performances that he went up against. I was just watching it for what it was. I thought they were discussing an important issue, and um, I thought it was a pretty good performance. So, I mean, that's that's how I looked at that one. Um, I get how someone could be put off, particularly if you liked another performance or another movie that it, that it went up against. I get that, too. Um, I, I do I do think that people like Tarantino or the Coen brothers, I think they make movies because they love to make movies. I don't mm-hmm. think they make movies specifically to make a shitload of money or to win an Oscar. If you really look to look at every movie that's ever won an Oscar or been nominated for an Oscar, most of them, someone could create an argument that's saying, oh, it was trying to win an Oscar. And does that make a movie better or worse because of it? You know, I think that's part of what we're doing here is just hashing out what what it is. I do have a quote here from the director, Michael Mingelli, that, that's pertaining to this topic specifically that popped up today that I wasn't even looking for. And I actually popped up after I asked you about the Oscar uh, bait situation. So here's here's the quote. And I want you guys to tell me what you think of this here. So again, this is the director, Anthony Mangella talking here. I remember trying to pitch this film to studios. So a burn guy is in a bed explaining himself to a nurse in a monastery at the end of the Second World War. It was the most unprepossessing pitch, I think, for any movie ever, which is why it took so long to finance it and why the money was always disappearing. We had actors who weren't really very well-known, a filmmaker who had never done anything, and a story which seemed profoundly obscure. Nine Academy Awards later, everybody said it was such an obvious film, such a, you know, Oscar bait. It was always very ironic to me, given how little enthusiasm the material had when we were trying to make it. So, you know, listen, that's his coming from his perspective. I'm sure there's some revisionist history there to, to some degree. But I just think it's, it is interesting how we can kind of look back and point and say, oh, it's so obvious that that would win an Oscar. But was it so obvious while they were putting the actual film together? I don't know. What do you think well, of that? The God, I mean, The Godfather was the same way. I'm sure Jaws at some points, too. Jaws I and mean, Star Wars was the same way, too. Like every, Oh, like, Star Wars, for sure, yeah. Those, those movies, everyone thought, I mean, not that Star Wars is, it's not like this Oscar, you know, you know whatever. But it was up for Best no, Picture. It was, it was up for Best Picture. But, I mean, those movies were under the threat of being shut down in any minute. Yeah. And, you know, look how well they age. I know. So, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't, I don't want to be a person that thinks that, People are just making movies just to win awards, you know, but I'm sure there's some reality to it. Well, and I just, I don't think that this filmmaker's intention from day one was, I'm going to win nine Oscars. Like, I think that the nine Oscars are a little bit of a cause and effect. I don't know. Adam, Melissa, what do you think? No, I, I agree. I don't, it's like I agree and then I don't agree. I mean, we're actors, so we know like being, whatever you do, whatever role you do, you're doing it because you want to give your best. You want it to be mm-hmm. the best. You want to be remembered for it. And as a designer, it's like, yeah, you're designing because you want this to stand out. You want it to be like, so of course. Um, yeah. in Hollywood, I can guarantee you behind every costume designer, director, writer, uh, you know, actor, of course, deep down, are they like, I, I, I want to be remembered for this and I want this to be acknowledged. You want to be acknowledged. Yeah. Like, that's what you want. So, yeah, I do of think course. probably deep down, whether everyone's going to say it or not, behind every movie, behind every role, behind everything you do, you're like, fingers crossed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's a good okay. way to put it. 
I really do. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, when they do win it, there's always going to be people there that say, oh, well, he was trying to win it or he was going to do it. And I'm sure that there are instances where there are and maybe they had the right political situation going on. Well, and, and others. I, oh, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm not. A movie buff like all of you guys i am the one that drinks through I'm, a movie and i'm just like here's buffs. my opinion <laughs> um i do i do think however with this movie i'm like it, i think it did start out where you have this guy who's trying to pitch this movie the very basic plot which when you just say it is kind of like okay <laughs> you know and yeah. as they're they're doing this it becomes more of like we need to make it about we need to make it about the place that this takes place. And everything in production is getting bigger and bigger. What's not getting bigger and what wasn't being, I think, as put up onto a pedestal as everything else was the plot and the actual screenplay of this movie. Because there were a lot of holes or there were a lot of spots that just did not match the extravagance of everything else. And that's where, at the end of this movie, I'm kind of like, Wow, 11, right? Or nine, Nine. excuse me. Like nine Academy Awards. Okay, I do have to say though, I'm always shocked by any movie that wins Best Picture and there's not a acting award in there. Like a winner? A winner. Yeah, there were nominations, but there was a winner. Julia Binoche won. Oh, she did win. Okay, sorry. But that does happen sometimes where like there's not an actor winner and I'm like, really? How did that? That's a good segue into talking. That was Titanic, yeah. Yeah, and that's a good segue to talking about some of the performances here. And um, why don't we talk about the winner? And really, the first person we see in this is uh, Juliette Binoche. Uh, what did you guys think of, of, of how she did in this one? I Adam, think, we'll start with you. I think she's amazing. Yeah. I think she is the light of the movie. I think her character has the biggest arc. I'm really invested in what what she's experiencing. And we all have thoughts of self-doubt. Am I doing the right thing? Am I am I putting too much time into something else? And, you know, the idea that she thinks that she might be cursed, I think is something that to one extent or the other is a thought that we as humans all have. Like, fuck, look, at, don't come near me because if you get near me, I'm going to rub off on you and your life's going to be shit. And it's such a human thought and I think she's just I don't know I it's the kind of thing that I complain about all the time in movies sometimes where characters are so invested or actors are so invested in transforming into a character but then their one note throughout Julia Binoche felt like she was Julia Binoche but her emotional arc is all over the place and I every yeah. time she was on screen I was like yes thank you I, I completely agree um, I, I thought she really gave a, a light to this movie that was that was much needed. Um, she breathed life into it. Mm-hmm. Her story with Kip was was very captivating to me. It was I, I, I really loved the trajectory of their yep. story. Mm-hmm. It brought a humanity to the movie that was sorely needed. I think I I t- agree with you there with within the the human nature of her character. And I loved. I really liked the concept. And I I think that I maybe I'm I'm alone in the in the four of us here and appreciating the depth of some of the characters in in the movie. I liked this idea of her being enamored with her her ghosts. I think they put it. Yeah. The the Ray Fiennes character was was the same. I think she she explained it as we're both we're both haunted by our own ghosts. We both love we both and, love ghosts. Yeah, and it was a lot of their their love with their ghosts, I yeah. think as they put it. Yeah. Which I thought was a very cool thing and it was was worded in a nice way. And there's a lot of this movie about about being being possessed by your past and not being able to 
um, to forge your future. And we're, of course, we're in this wartime setting where there's probably a lot of a lot of looming feelings going on amongst whoever was over there in Europe at that at that time. But when when we get to Ray Fiennes and about about his almost personality disorder when it came to his uh, his love interests, um, but she really. With all the tragedy and all the the heartache that she's been subjected to, developed that idea that it was in some way her fault, which is a it's, just a, yeah. it's a fascinating psychological concept there with oh. this. And when you you introduce the um, I'm, I'm going to call him Saeed, unfortunately. No, no, that's what I wrote him down. That's what I wrote him down in my notes. <laughs> all right, so we have we have three three big lost fans here. Grant, you're not not so much. I'm into not it, hip to it. it. Yeah, sorry. He he cued on the Seinfeld stuff. We'll have to lean over to this on on the lost stuff. But um, Saeed is incredible in this, and uh, he's uh, the name of the actor Naveen uh, Andrews. Uh, Naveen, Naveen Andrews. Naveen yeah. Andrews, um, and he plays Kip in yes. this. It's just every time he's on screen is great, and anyone who's a, who's a um a, a fan of of Lost knows that he is one of the more beloved characters on that show and it just makes you scratch your head and wonder why does this why has this guy got not gotten more work over the years I mean, he's a wonderful wonderful actor i mean where where has it is is it a matter of of not having roles for for him and based on his demographic or what what do you think unfortunately i think that's the answer um mm. and that may be Maybe he got discovered too late. I think about, I think Dev Patel had, I think knew more of what he wanted to do with his career. And I think he, he took full advantage of the success of Slumdog Millionaire because you got to remember, I mean, at least from like a, a pop culture standpoint, 96 is when English Patient comes out and then what lost is 03? Oh four when it come when that starts. Uh ooh yeah, Lost concludes in 06, I think. Okay. So yeah, it's probably right around. Yeah. I just wonder if 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 Naveen Andrews didn't quite cash in on that English patient paycheck, if, if you get what I mean. Because I because I think he's yeah. certainly talented enough. Lost runs from two thousand four to two thousand ten. Okay. Well, we're I guess we'll kind of go. We'll start in the quote unquote present and head to the past. The uh, the Pacino storyline versus the De Niro storyline. We'll start in the in the but that's my Godfather two reference there. Let's talk Rafe and uh, Rafe finds this will be one of three movies that we're going to talk about him in. He he plays a um, a villainous role in Schindler's List, the movie we haven't covered yet. Mm. Steven Spielberg Schindler's List, and he plays a little cameo in Hurt Locker, another movie we haven't. Uh, finish it. So this is this is our first Ray Fiennes experience here. And when, we, um, and when we eventually do the Harry Potter series, <laughs> we can talk about Voldemort. Okay, so now we've reached the uh, the trilogy of one of us not knowing what the others are talking about, and <laughs> ah. that would be that would be Harry Potter for me. That's my blind spot. So, uh, Seinfeld for for you guys, <laughs> lost for Grant, and um, I will certainly be lost in any Harry Potter talk there. So. What do we think about Ray's performance in this one? Melissa, why don't you start us off? I love him as an actor. I, I typically enjoy just the different characters that he can portray. And he could play a, a good guy, a bad guy, a dad, a like sexy romance mm-hmm. guy. Like yeah. he could play it all. And this movie, I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just was not... I still don't know where I feel about this. I don't think he was, he, it wasn't, he wasn't bad. It wasn't like throw an Oscar at him because he deserves it in this movie. I also didn't feel that way either. I just, I, I have to say like the men in this movie are not desirable and they're very unlikable. And a lot of yeah. them have attributes. And the only man that I was like, 
in love with from the beginning and just was like, oh my God, I need more of this, especially in a movie that's supposed to be like a romantic movie, was Kip. Yeah. We didn't get enough yeah. of him. And it was like, it was a very new experience watching a movie with, what's what's his character's name? A- Amashi. 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 I, I just kind of like, it, it just left like a, a COVID taste in my mouth, which is non-existent, <laughs> I should say. It left a very non-existent. <laughs> like, I didn't, I I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I would like to piggy, piggyback off, off of uh, that. Is he supposed to be charming or socially awkward? Because I feel like he couldn't decide if he was charming or like kind of socially awkward and creepy. Okay, well, I to answer that question specifically is, yeah, I, I do think that that was absolutely within his character description is that he was socially awkward and creepy. Okay. I mean, he is a, he is not a good, that's one thing that I, that kind of like broke through a little bit for me, this feeling with this is, he is not a good guy. No. Like this is, no. he's not, he is an, he is an unlikable character. And, all, I, and almost all unlikable. Um, I, yes, I agree with you. It, they are all on this is like this is like and, closer. And, I, I, and I think that that is I don't think that's unintentional. I don't think that I don't think that they put this out there thinking that people were going to think that that Ray Fine's character was oh, the right. greatest character. That's, that's definitely silly. men in Hollywood writing a movie going women are going <laughs> to love this. And then women are going, what the fuck? Like, I, no, but I think women. I don't know, them, but though. I think the women. I thought the women characters were the stronger characters in the. In the film, though. No. Oh, the women character, yes. But I'm saying, like, the portrayal of, like, these men that are supposed to be the, like, a woman watching this movie going, why would she want to be with him? Why would she want to well, be with this guy? Uh, why would yeah. she? Like, that, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, that's what I'm saying. If, she d- she doesn't, though. She no, doesn't want to be, she, she doesn't want to be either. She's talking about the audience. She's talking about the audience. Yeah, I know. Right. But even, like, oh, okay. okay, so yeah. we're talking about Ray Fine's character, and I'm watching yeah. as a woman going, why would she want to be with him? She wants to be with him. She's having a relation. Nowhere there was I like, what? What, what is it? They, they, she's vacationing with him. You know, she doesn't want to be married to him. She's not my, leaving. She's not leaving her husband for him. My my big my big issue is is that they laid they laid practically zero groundwork into this relationship. Right. No. No. And, and, um, no. And, um, and, no. Oh, are you talking about and, and, the act, the actors, or are you talking about like the writers? Because I was like, the writers didn't put both. shit into this. Uh, both, I think. I, I, it almost feels like they they they, they started an affair because the script told them to. Ah, no, no, I have to disagree. I think okay, they the way that this portrayed is that these two people found each other, and you know what I mean, came together. There's a reason why they came together. There's a reason why they're having an affair. There is a reason why they are trying to keep this a secret. And they're still together. Sure. What that reason is, they did all. This is where they did not succeed, in my opinion. They did not succeed making this known. And this is where I really disengaged from it. Because it was like, what, it, what is it? Nobody wants to really sit here and watch a movie about two people that might be in love, but they're not in love. They're really just fucking around to fuck around. But then, like, let's make this romance movie about this. It's like, that, there's nothing romantic about that. Does this like am Adam? I you were kind of <laughs> Adam. You were kind of squirming a little bit. What did what did you? What so did you I, I actually, and this is where I think the movie where where people use the word complex. I that's where I kind of scoff. So Colin Firth and Kristen Scott Thomas they fly in. Uh, welcome to the to the Sand Club or whatever the fuck they're called. Mm-hmm. And um, that's yeah. when Almashi meets uh, Catherine for the first time. 
and uh, they have a little back and forth. This 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 might you might call this the meat cute of their um the meat cute the meat cute. Um, and uh, Catherine says, you know, I read your monograph. I wanted to meet the man who could write such a long paper with so few adjectives. And then he's like, well, a, th- a thing is still a thing, no matter what you place in front of it. And we have this like, oh, look at them standing up for what they believe in. It's like these these two people who have this instant sort of, oh, we're going to a tete-a-tete, if you will. And then we have the most awkward game of spin the bottle ever <laughs> fucking played. But Definitely what happens. Great. That's true is it leads to this way too obvious moment where Catherine is reciting from Herodotus and she talks about this story where essentially a woman uh, uh, tells this guy that he either has to submit to death for gazing on what he should not have or to kill her husband who has shamed me and become the king in his place. And at that point, the movie has told you exactly what you are supposed to see. And at that point, I was like, you're not complex. In fact, you're the opposite of complex. You're too fucking easy. Yeah, and you, honestly, I was like, nope. You're not. You just spelled trusting, out the movie right, for me. It's like. It's very I, on the nose. You're not trusting the audience is going to figure this out. And so you Sorry, put this in I'm there. I'm getting hot. I'm getting hot over here. <laughs> no, but I, I agree with that. And yeah, there's. I, I would agree that there. And and that I would say is probably around my least favorite part of the movie. There is the the spin the bottle section and a lot of that stuff. Little um, potato. Little we have no um, bananas I, or whatever the fuck it was. I, I where I appreciate the characters is is their inner qualities and how they interact with each other from the the Ray Fiennes standpoint. You have a very inclusive, very stuck in his book type of guy who doesn't put himself out there so often. He's out there. At what he's out there to what draw maps? I think is what. Yeah, he's, a, he's, he's like a topographer. Him. Yeah, right. So he's scoping the landscape. He, he's not out there looking for looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, he's out in the desert <laughs> trying to make maps, and he gets stuck in in basically in the stand, sandstorm here with with Cat with K Catherine. And that's where, like, Grant, I'm going to disagree that I do think that they set up the relationship with them because it starts off pretty plutonic. And I think the movie shows a little more restraint than most movies do in the sense that they're not just clicking into romance right away. It is there's you can see there's a little bit of a of a of a uh, I'm not quite going to go there. Then they're stuck in the in the car together and he kind of touches her hair a little bit. I think the movie builds up to its to its physicality from a romantic standpoint. It doesn't just kind of snap fingers and and you know have have Ben Affleck smiling and then we're making out kind of thing. Oh, but like that car scene, the sandstorm scene bothered me so much because it just was like here we have like a 3-hour movie and you're making a relationship happen like that a relationship that didn't start off like he was a dick to her at first and she was trying to be just like cordial um, yeah. yeah and and a little but they didn't they didn't hook up though no but they didn't what, hook up they didn't well I, you don't have to hook up to have relationships right you could have right. like an emotional it was a charged moment right. right what was very like it just didn't seem right is and this is where it was like i didn't like the character because he really is he's not a likable character here he is talking about himself and he's doing a story and he's like, sh- you know, she's she's sitting there. I didn't like how close they were all of a sudden. Like, okay, you're in a sandstorm, but you're still in the car. Why are you guys so close to each other? I don't know. I just They're didn't huddled, like yeah. it. But he makes the first move. He touches her hair. He's talking about himself. Like, he's making 
the relationship about him. And again, I'm just like, as like watching this, I'm just like, what is romantic about this? Well, well, yeah, well, yeah, okay. No, I, I don't, listen, I don't like the character either from a, from a like thinking he's a good guy standpoint. I mean, I like the presentation of what we're forced to, to discuss and what we're forced to look at. I don't think he's a good guy. I don't think that he's someone that, that, the, that the, the, the viewer should look at and say, oh, I'm rooting for him. I'm certainly not rooting for him. But is, is, does his character, is that, is that distant from what we see later on when he is, is ripping her dress or when he's going to her job and telling her to feign sick or when he's pulling her aside and, and chastising her for dancing with a younger guy? Like he's, he's a, the, we say it, he says flat out, he goes, I don't like ownership. I don't like people who have ownership. But that is just a layer of him not being able to confront the fact that he's a possessive, freaky weirdo. Yes. I mean, that's what he, that's what he is. Yes, I do agree. Um, and, okay, I do have to say. He's an ugly character. The way in their, like, awkward sex scene that they had, the fact that he ripped her blouse and then sewed it, I was like, very sweet. You got some brownie points. <laughs> he, he sewed it back up for her. I was actually like, okay, okay, he might be winning my heart, maybe. He didn't, but I just, I did, I appreciated that. <laughs> well, I'll, I appreciated it too, and it got a major reverse nitpick for me. So we have our nitpick zone later, but it got a oh. reverse nitpick because how many movies and TV shows have we seen where people are ripping their clothes into shreds? You never see them the next morning like, oh, fuck, I, this is, this blouse like, is ruined. They're walking, they're walking <laughs> shame and they're in tatters. Right, yeah. right, right. Oh, that was my favorite tie. God damn it. Um, Get up. Well, just while, while we were talking about Ray Fiennes, I, I definitely wanted to mention that as, as, as long as the movie is and as much as I, I think collectively we all feel the length of the movie, the one thing that the length of the movie gives us is a chance to see Ray Fiennes have a character arc. And um, not just those moments where he yeah he is trying to pull her aside around Christmas and where he gets, where he comes in drunk and accosts her. But, you know, I, I, I will say that both of us had a little bit of emotional reaction when he comes out of the cave carrying Catherine and crying. Mm. And it was like, yeah, I mean, he, and that last chunk of the movie where he's fighting like tooth and nail to get back to her, I think. I think that he earns that moment. And now, and and I'm talking specifically as Ray finds the actor, the character. That's something else. It, he's he's it's a tough character to root for. But I do think that the movie does give Ray finds the time to fully flesh out an emotional arc for Almashi. Yeah, no, I I, I I do agree. I there were times where I wasn't really into his performance. I don't know if that was like again, it's one of those things where I don't know if that was just his intent the entire time to kind of play a character a certain way. I didn't respond well to it. I, I, I first of all, I don't, don't really, didn't really get the the chemistry between Fines and Chris and Scott Thomas. There were times where like they were interacting and I just didn't really buy it. I'm not sure if that's the actor's fault or if that's the script's fault. Or both. Um, or both. <laughs> well, I, I thought, I don't, I don't disagree with you on fully on, on the performance end of things. Um, I, I, I think that he's good in this. I, I'm okay with the nomination. I think he. I think he's fine. I, I don't think it's a memorable performance by any right. stretch of the imagination. I do think, however, he was perfectly cast because we know of him from a main stage standpoint as Voldemort. as the, well, all right. <laughs> I'll tie that in if you'd like. He's the he's the shit heel. He's a shit heel from Sinner's List. I mean, he plays yeah. a, he plays a goddamn Nazi. Yeah, you know so. 
He's been established as a villain. History treats him well in the same category later on whenever he becomes whatever word I'm not supposed to say or whatever that is. And um, and he's also probably the only really great part of Red Dragon, right? I mean... Um, uh, I, you know what? You're talking to the wrong guy because I love Red Dragon. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. all right. Well, but is he, is he not the best part of it? Oh, shit. Oh, uh, man. He's great. Yeah, I mean, probably. He's great. That, we'll leave opinions vary. Opinions vary, but I think he's ensemble. the best part. Yeah, the cast is It is good. right. Okay, good. And he's, he's also yeah. terrific in Bruges. So, oh. and, We're and Melissa, you can fans. correct me. <laughs> Yo, it's, it's great. Great in Bruges, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. If it's, again, opinions vary, too. When he's out there in the desert sun with his blonde hair and his, his olive skin, but he's a pretty punky dude. Oh. Am I wrong? Is he? I, no, I definitely, I, I definitely did. <laughs> I had the hots for him. Yes. I was All right, like, there we go. Okay, I was fuck, like, thank you. Oh, I yeah. didn't know he used to be that attractive. Like, and I think he's, a, I thought he was so attractive in Embrush. Let me tell you. I was like. Yeah, okay. So there we go. But we have this, this really, you know, attractive character out in the sun. But, but we, in our, in our mind's eye, you know, back, we've established him as a villain and you can see him turn ugly on a dime in this movie where you forget about his looks in the second and you see that oh, this guy's kind of like a voyeur internal weirdo, you know? And I, I think that works really well for this thing from a character study standpoint. While the script at times I think is lacking and can be described as shallow, I don't think the characters in this movie from a development standpoint are shallow. I think that there's some depth to every character within this movie. That's my take. I followed by silence. I mostly <laughs> no 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 no. I mostly agree. I want to save. I I have I have a hot take, but I I want to save it. I would like to save my hot take. So I'm okay. gonna. I was just to say regarding Rayfine's character. By the end of this movie, I was just like the most I got out of the character that I could like put into words was I, I feel like they were like let's make a Beauty and the Beast character and focus on the Beast. It's kind of like makes sense what I'm saying. You have I, it's kind of though I, as I, if I the Beast. I'm following. It's right. kind of though if the Beast never turned back into a man though. He just right. kinda, <laughs> it's kind of well, died with his clock and his yeah. fucking right. candelier. But it's kind of like. <laughs> the non-fairy tale version, like you have this like really handsome guy and then something tragic happens and he's Ugh. not really that good of a guy. But it's not that he's like yeah. intentionally done horrible things. It's just like he himself just isn't the best guy. And then it was like... He's not a stand-up guy, yeah. Right. And then it's like the last scene and when you see him like... I, well, it's not like the last scene, but when you see him like do everything he can to get back to this cave, you're just like... You are kind of rooting for him and you're like, wow, did... Like, in, in my head, I was like, did he have a soul? Did he actually have, like, of course he had a soul. But I don't know. <laughs> I saw, like, a glimpse of, like, hope. And I just thought, oh, the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. This is kind of like a, a different version of that character. This, this, was, this, was, him, this was him sending Belle home to, to, to save, his father, save her father. That was that, was that moment, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, viewed, I just viewed his character as, as a, he, he got lost in a romance that he thought was love, and he, he defined his life by that, and we're left here to watch him withering away, obsessed with that last fashion. I mean, it's not, that's not, a, that's, I, no wonder they had such a hard time pitching it to the production companies, because that's not anything that, who would have thought that that would have been the, the feel-good romance of the year there? I don't know. I think it's, I think it, it provides for an interesting discussion, if, if nothing else. I do have two questions that I want to ask, one, one to each of you, because you two are the closest we've ever had to experts on the show. So, 
<laughs> We're gonna, uh, one is, is in each of your fields. I'm going to ask Melissa's question though. I'm gonna ask Grant to get kind of Grant's response. And then I want your, your analysis here with okay. this. Here, Melissa. Okay, so this movie here was nominated for a bajillion Oscars, as we said, mm -hmm. and won most of the ones it was nominated for. However, one Oscar it was not nominated for was makeup. Okay, I have... It was not nominated... I'm going to ask Grant first. I want, I want your thoughts. I want your thoughts, Melissa, for, for sure. I want your expertise on this. Your authentic expertise. <laughs> it did not even get a nomination for makeup, which the Oscars, of course, won by The Nutty Professor, starring uh, Eddie Murphy. Grant, what did you think of the makeup work in this movie? I thought it was good. I'm not too familiar with burn victims. <laughs> um... No, but no, but I I, I, I thought of this while before deciding to ask the question, but so I'm <laughs> glad you said that. I, no, I, I, I think it, I think it's really I think it's really effective. I, I don't I don't know why it wasn't nominated. Interesting. I, I can understand I can understand it losing to the Nutty Professor. But yeah, the other nominees there's only three nominees to I think Star Trek and Ghosts of Mississippi were the other were the other two. Now I want to just before I kick it to Melissa, I want to say that I don't I haven't really formed an opinion because I'm not. I'm not in on that world. I, I, I want to hear what, what your thoughts here with this one. Okay. I think I need to start doing research before I do these pods because I just assumed. <laughs> I just, Adam just spit out his I beer. just assumed <laughs> makeup wasn't a category at this point. I literally wrote that down. When Adam was telling me like all the, all the Oscars that it was up for and makeup wasn't one of them, I – almost said something to him but we tr I, we really tried to keep our notes separate and not say much so okay. we could Love keep that. this um, as authentic as <laughs> possible um, but I wrote down oh makeup wasn't a thing like it wasn't a <laughs> like I had no idea a nutty professor first of all I didn't know a nutty professor was up for an Oscar you just gotta ask know. me babe that's a <laughs> but I'm right there with you Grant like I the way that the prosthetics and the makeup was with this, I'm like, it was very effective. Like, I understood what they were yeah, doing. It, sure. it it worked. Whether it was how truth to what it, that would look like, it, it worked and believable. And mm -hmm. it was very hard to, like, watch him. And, like, any of those m moments where she would, like, roll him over on his side or have to help him, like, it, it really did make those scenes that much more kind of, like, intense yeah. and as I was watching it, I would kind of, like, tense up because I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't imagine how that feels. For for him, I, and I, I, yeah, I, I will say the scene of him eating the plum was kind of disgusting. <laughs> I mean, that turned me on. It's so very plummy. <laughs> this plum is. This plum is. We eat a plum. lot of plums like this in that this household. <laughs> yes, a plum is not an attractive fruit from the inside either. Like I don't know what color. It's like some mix of brown, orange, and purple. From the inside, it's a tough one. Although, if she were to feed me a plum, I'd be like, yes. I'd probably be like, okay. <laughs> like, Yeah, chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very shocked. Adam just pumped his fist. Yes. <laughs> I'm very shocked that no, this he rolled was his not eyes nominated. And I don't, do you have any, like, uh, was there any research or anything out there that says, like, why That was going to be my follow-up question, was what, why do you think that this wasn't? In a year where they're trying to throw every Oscar the English patient's way, why was it not even nominated? Can I, can I throw out a guess? Sure. So I think something that they try to do, and I think this, this happens with costumes and it happens with production, it happens with all of the tech, the Below the Line Awards, is they really try to honor as many different kinds of movies as possible. So, you know, with... With the Nutty Professor, you've got weight, you know, added prosthetics and and the fat suits and everything they did to make those characters. And there's a lot of it. 
in Star Trek, you've got the sci-fi element, and in Ghost of Mississippi, you have characters kind of being aged over time. And I think what happened was back then it was it was really common to have only three nominees for best makeup. What I think happened was this one just because it really is just Ray Fiennes. It really is yeah. just that character. Well, that is that is true. It is just that character. And and I think in in another year maybe it does, but I think ultimately there just wasn't enough. Like it's like it's hard to just nominate it for the one thing. Yeah, so you kind of answered my follow-up question because what's interesting is is the following year at the Oscars, we're going to get another Oscars where they're looking to throw every award at a specific movie. And Titanic did get a makeup nominee. Yeah, but it didn't which, win. Which I thought was interesting. It didn't win. But English Patient didn't, get, didn't even get one. And then I think you kind of answered my question saying it was just one character. So that, that makes some sense there with that. I thought the best moment of the makeup was in the beginning when they were putting the bandages on that face. I mean, that was some Hellraiser shit yeah. going on there where he had the, the no skin on his face. But, okay, so I, I, I like that I like that there and saying that maybe can, just the one character. Can we talk about that for a second? Because when they're dressed, when they're putting the, um, like, they were putting that stuff on him to kind of heal the, mm-hmm. the burns. Did you guys ever, like, take a tortilla and bite out the eyes <laughs> and the mouth and then wear it as a mask? <laughs> because that's exactly what I thought of. I do that like all the time. All the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the I, fuck are you talking? I've made... I'm just kidding. No, but I used to do that all the time. Like, yeah, kids, I kids mean, do that, I, like... who who hasn't made a tortilla mask? <laughs> and that's exactly what I thought. I of. don't think Adam has. I don't think he's. Lived. Well, he hasn't. Yeah, really I got news for you. Life. Adam, you're missing out. Yeah. You're missing I, out. I may have to confess to making a. A, a fruit roll-up mask. I think Ooh. I've done, I think I've done that before, uh, which is almost very Ray Fiennes looking in this too. You get the real kind of like Hellraiser look. Yeah, like the on textured it. red right. on it. Yeah. I, All right, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it off to my question for Adam now too. Adam, you're a, a stage actor who has your masters in in acting, right? I'm not wrong with that. I right? do. Yep. Um, and an acting teacher. I want to talk to you a little bit about the act of crying as an actor. What goes into it? What, how you thought it was in this movie. We mentioned the, the, the Ray Fiennes scene there at the end, and I loved the choice of having no audio there. I thought that made it way more powerful than, you know, just ha- just kind of have the score there and, and lean into that. But uh, we're going to talk about the Juliet Benouche character's um, deal with it. But if you can, give us a little a little uh, crash course on on crying as an actor, stage versus film. What, what, whatever you have to say on that on that topic. So I know, I think it was during the episode of Roman Holiday that you were on of 1001 by yep. 1, where there is a film technique, which is really just a close-up and you don't blink. And if there, especially if there are bright lights, which there always are on a film set, it's easy to maybe not cry, but look teary-eyed. It's very easy sure. to look, to get a certain look for film. It's it's weird. I want to answer your question in, in two different ways, which is funny because a, 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 a lot of young actors their goal, their dream, their objective as an actor is to learn how to cry on stage. And my immediate response to them is that should never be your end goal. Because if you're thinking about crying on stage, it's never gonna happen. Or if it does, it's gonna be fake. It's gonna come across as false because you're not thinking about the character intentions, you're thinking about your own kind of selfish actor intentions. Okay. There's a great anecdote in a, a, a voice book that I read when I was in grad school. And essentially how the story goes is uh, a husband and wife were seeing a show back in a, like probably like the 80s. And at a point in the show, a woman finds out that her daughter has been killed. 
And apparently, uh, so the record states, the actress let out kind of a weird shrieky sound. And the husband and wife thought that this was totally unbelievable, that what she did was false and that no person would ever make a sound like that. Well, then years later, the husband Uh wrote a letter to this actress uh, basically explaining the exact same story. We saw you in a show. We thought that your performance was unbelievable until the day that we found out that our daughter died. And the husband is recollecting on a sound that his wife made. And it was very similar to the sound that this actress made on stage. And so my response to your question about crying on stage is that, A, it should never be the purpose of your acting or of the performance, because if it is, it's never gonna happen. But that B, every human is going to respond to any situation differently. And whether it's tears or it's yelling or it's silence, that your emotional response to a situation is exactly that. It is your emotional response to a situation. So in terms of like wanting to cry on stage, I, 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 sh- I shy actors away from it. Don't make that a thing that you're trying to do. Now, if it is your end goal, there's the whole- Because you've been in things where you've had to cry. Yeah, there's the whole, you know, there's the Stanislavski magic if, which is basically, if I was this character, then what would make this real for me, right? So it's the idea of transference. It's like, okay, I've never, I've never, my spouse has never died. She's right here. But what would it be like if she died? Or what was it like when somebody I knew died? And how did I respond to that? And it's trying to make your personal situation as close and as relevant to the character situation as possible. And then from there, the response is the response. All right. Great, great stuff, too. And I, I want to say, too, is that, that, that I like that the, all of that's in there because that adds is a good companion piece to me and the comments I made last week on the Bridge of the Required in pertaining to prisoners and Hugh Jackman and such that. So you can couple those two together. Oh, if you think oh, I'm an idiot, trust you can me, go ahead I didn't and know that. if it was going to, I had, I, trust me, I had bridge on the river quite follow-ups up here at my very top of my notes. So, <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. So wait, 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 I, I had a feeling I'd trigger you a little bit in the prisoner section there. I do want to now just follow up there with that one is what did you think of the Juliette Binoche crying scenes in this one? How do they kind of grade in, in, in what you evaluate actors with in, in that category? There's a certain, I don't want to, I don't know how to answer this. Levity is the wrong word, but there's that, that crying through a smile kind of, I don't know. There's something about the way in which she was trying to hide it. And that's the thing too, is like as an actor, the goal shouldn't be to cry. The goal should be to not cry. Right, because you can work against something, and in working against something, if the tears come, it's like that's the fight, right? I can't, I can't work for tears, but I can try not to show how upset I am, and in and in working against that, that's when it comes. And I, again, I found it believable, and I found it, you know, and this sounds cliche. This is a very acting teacher response, but I found it uniquely her. I found it uniquely okay. her response. Wow. Okay, so th- I'm gonna kick the grab, but then I'm gonna follow up on that based on some of the director's comments, and I, I think that they're going to be right on par with, with what you yeah, just said there. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just ask, like, even, like, the part where it seems like when she cries, it's just, like, she kind of holds it together and just out of nowhere just starts blubbering kind of thing. I don't know. Is that – was that what you are talking about, or is that yeah. – because to, to, to me that felt a little jarring It's tough. a little bit. It's, it's tough, because, and again, this is where there's probably not enough – as long as this movie is, we probably could have used a little more um, exposition or some or some character work. But I think that the idea of a character 
who's maybe been trying to hold it all back for a long time. Again, and I, I'm not going to lie. I looked over at your notes earlier. And I, I'm totally stealing this from you, but I want you to chime in at some point. Um, I mean, she's a nurse in World War II. Like, I don't know what she's experienced. Yeah. And her husband has yeah. died. Right. We don't hear and, her whole backstory. And you could only imagine what she has seen. I mean, from what we have seen her see so far, just glimpses. Oh, for sure. It's, it's very jarring because she does go from, like, kind of crying to just, like, sobbing. It is. And then she could stop. But it's also very much like, holy shit, what she is holding, like she's literally holding so much weight on her shoulders and being a woman about it, I just have to say, because us yeah. women really yeah. know how to hold shit together and keep moving on, sure. moving on. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, very provoking right. in like my own emotional response watching it. Wow, yeah, and I, I gotta say, Grant, that I had a similar, kind of similar notes as you with it. Pretty much what you said there about it kind of more or less took out exactly what I had down with it. And I love what Adam said and Melissa, what you said too about it too, because my experience of watching it and then kind of hearing the, the director talk about her performance <clears throat> is just very in line with what I think with what you guys were saying. One, basically what Mangela said with it was Binoche, the way that she, she encapsulated the character while Ray Fiennes and, and Defoe, who are who we haven't even spoke about Defoe yet, but very experienced stage actors, everything they did with their character was extremely measured. They could hone into whatever scene they were doing, whatever motion they were. They were the ultimate like pros of pros. Julia Pinoche was very emotionally in tune with her character, and and she got when she was sad, she was upset. Like she was actually upset, and there were some almost emotional improvs to her character because there were times where there were scenes where she wasn't even supposed to get that emotional, where she got a little extra emotional and they went with it. And he said that they, we, we could, I knew when filming her, we couldn't do a lot of takes when, when her big scenes are like, all right, we got to get what we got to get. And the other actors knew that too. So mm. when, when we're doing a, when we're doing a Ray finds in the bed scene, I can do, I can do 20, 50 takes fine. We'll, we'll take the best one. But the Julia Pinoche scenes is like, this is raw emotion. This is, this is she didn't wear a lot of layers to her skin is how he has how he said it. And that created such a I mean, he, he would see her flush at the neck at times. And there would be like some some there would be some times like this one point where she's washing her hair upset. And that was a, a scene where she wasn't necessarily supposed to be getting getting like to a crying state. And they just used that within the movie. And it speaks a lot to her performance there. And I think, Adam, that's a lot of what you said about it, too, is it's just you don't know how someone's going to react to something. And this is. The way she encapsulated the character, that's how she reacted. Yeah, I, I, I think part of it, too, is when you guys kind of talked about this before, where she's this nurse and she lost her husband. And it's almost in wartime, you kind of don't have time to cry kind of thing. You kind of have to move on. You kind of have to deal with what, you know, what's going on. So years of, of doing that, not getting, she like almost allows herself like five seconds <laughs> to mourn or to get like to get upset. And then she kind of has to move on. So I think this conversation kind of enlightened me a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. We haven't talked a lot about, or at all, at about all. Willem Dafoe. I mean, listen, this is our, our second Dafoe appearance here. It was uh, on our anniversary episode uh, last year with Platoon. What did we think of Willem Dafoe's presence in this movie, his performances versus his character? You know, what, what do we think here? Adam, we'll start with you. Um, I, 
trust me, whenever Willem Dafoe appears in something, I'm excited. And, and yes, he does have a, an extensive, not only extensive stage background, but a, a fairly avant-garde experimental stage background. If you do any search on the Wooster Group, which is a group in New York that he's a part of, you'll see the weird shit that they do. Um, and I, I love Willem Dafoe as an actor. Anytime he's in something, I'm excited. And it's, I hate to say it this way, but like he was, he was fine in this. I, they, I mean, I, quite honestly, the script did not do this character any justice. He's, he's barely in it, which is a shame because Willem Dafoe is, he's got such a, what's the right word? I mean, magnetic isn't, isn't maybe it is, but like he comes on screen and you're instant, you're like, oh, what's this guy up to? Good, bad, I don't know, but I want to find out. And I was less, interested and honestly i'm not gonna lie all of that stuff with his character just tacked on screen time i don't know how necessary mm -hmm. it was despite how much i, lo yeah. I love willem dafoe yeah. yeah that's that's a good point i feel like i feel like he's just kind of there to for to push along um amashi's backstory well and something i found out today which i and again i this isn't you know this isn't my podcast so i did some research but not a lot um I didn't realize it's nice, that, isn't it? The, it is. It is nice, not, <laughs> but I didn't know that the English Patient as a book was a was sort of a sequel, and that Caravaggio. This is sort of an extension of Caravaggio's story. Um, oh, and so maybe there's there's obviously more story about him that's somewhere else, and it's it's unfortunate because I I feel like as much as I yeah as much as I love Defoe, it seemed like an unnecessary thing to add to it because I don't know. I don't know what it added to it. Yeah, his his character was, I'm right there with you. Like, love him. Also thought he was very attractive in this movie. And... <laughs> Um, can you that? wait till I'm not taking a drink <laughs> to just to express your love for the men in this movie? I damn it. Um, and, well, the actors, not the the characters. Let's get that straight. Are you listening? To I me? got you. I'm okay. pouring wine. I got you. Um, <laughs> No, I I very much was like I want to see him because he it's not that he did a bad job at all, but it was just no. very an, an underwritten character and we knew why he was in there or like why he had to be to further Rafine's character's back, backstory. backstory. Yeah. But I I almost was like could this have been just like a not a Willem Dafoe character? Character and just like a somebody smaller. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I I looked up Roger uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel's review of him, but they couldn't figure out how many thumbs to give him. Uh, um, uh, no. That's yeah, a dad joke. I, that's, a, that's a dad joke right there. This guy's loving it. Oh my God. Yes. Um, Holy so, shit. listen, I, I, when I first told Grant that he was going to be on this movie, I knew I had to give it to him just to, just to torture his wife because she hates Colin Firth so much. So when Firth comes up, he's, he's, going, he's going Grant's way. Um, he goes, oh, Willem Dafoe. And I go, yeah, sure. <laughs> I did not even remember he was in the movie. Then in watching it this time, I kind of realized why I had that reaction because it just couldn't be any more of a forgettable character. I mean, the guy gets tortured like 24 style. He gets his, his thumbs aggressively cut off in this thing. And the viewers kind of just like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, granted, this, mo this movie lulls the, the, view the viewer into a certain sort of state to begin with. But I think that him as an actor, he just, he makes the most out of a completely forgettable role. If you watch what he's doing in this movie, boy, what would that role have been with a blah actor? I mean, it, it would have been, it would have been something that we wouldn't even really probably even be talking about in this, in this episode. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that just goes that just goes to to say how how talented he is as an actor is that he you know he he adds he he makes that role something you can build on this poster. And I got to say too is like there have been times where I've scrolled through Twitter and just seen tweets about how sexy Willem Dafoe is and being like what Twitter has <laughs> lost its mind again like what's going on here. And then I was watching this movie and I was like ah. Okay, I see where they're. I see yeah. where they're coming Listen, from. Now. There, there's only one movie that Willem Dafoe is unsexy in. It is called Wild at Heart. It is a David Lynch movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, watch the movie and watch it for Willem Dafoe, and you will see exactly how unattractive he can be. Because <laughs> holy okay. shit, watch seriously, watch Wild at Heart. Oh my god, that's when Nicholas Cage is in that. Yes, right? yes, in yes. Laura Dern. Yep, yeah. I have, I have not seen it, but I, I want to. Oh, man. I love it. I can't wait. <laughs> the character seems very shoehorned into this thing. And I, I think a lot of it, too, is maybe – and I, I know that the, that the director said that he – while he was doing this thing, he did not have the source material at his side, quote-unquote. Like, it wasn't in his mind. Like, he was – he knew what the story he was working with was, and he made the movie from there. And I think maybe that's – the result of that character is probably a product of that is like maybe the book, the source material went a little more into the importance of, of that character. And it just, it didn't seem necessary for the director's vision in this thing. And it, that kind of, kind of showed. It was, it was an unnecessary character that was elevated by Defoe's performance. And in, in a, in a two hour and 40 minute movie that feels like a four hour and 50 minute movie, those types of characters are not overly welcome. So it's nice to have, it's nice to be able to say positive thoughts about it. I will say that the original cut of this movie, you have it, Adam? Uh, Was it four and a half? It was four and a half. And um, there was supposedly a scene where we first go back in time where there's a, you know, a a local there with, with the turban and it's this like 12 minute scene or whatever it is, is this long thing about him going on a monologue about how to catch an ostrich. And the Vigella director's like, I just loved the scene and I, I wanted to keep it in. The production company wanted to lose it. And I'm, just, I'm listening to it just like, dude, like, come on. Like what, wait, with this movie, this movie needs a scene about a guy talking about how to catch an ostrich less than just about anything you could come up with. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, give me a break with it. Um, and it reminds me of a, a thought that we had last week in the Bridge in the River Kwai mm. episode about how David Lean is is known as self-indulgent and he's admittedly self-indulgent. However, he knew how to cut a scene better than anyone. He could get rid of his own work and throw it on the cutting room floor better than anyone else. And I think this movie kind of lacked that a little bit where there was, we made a four and a half hour movie with no idea how to cut it. Whereas the Lawrence Arabias of the world, he knew even though he was filming that this wasn't going to probably make the movie. We're, we're, we're cutting here, we're cutting there and it can chisel down that way. But again, that's when you talk about, about great directors, all time directors versus directors who who had a moment of greatness or quote-unquote relevance or greatness however you want to put it i think that's important to bring up though with anthony Mangella is because his the two feature-length movies before this and i haven't seen these but i would like to to read the titles are called truly madly deeply and mr wonderful which seem very much in the rom-com kind of fashion and this is such a step up from the kind of you know, fairly independent romantic movies he was making. And not that I, I, I don't think that this movie was above him as a director in, in any sense, but I, I won't lie. The movie ended and I was thinking, 
how much better of a film this would have been in the hands of a more seasoned director. That was easily a thought I had as the movie came to an end. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that. I will say, though, I think this movie restrained from some things that many other filmmakers would have leaned the other way on. I mean, you guys just covered a Michael Bay movie. That's a dramatic example. But think about, like... Think about the, the opportunities that this movie could have had to tell you how to feel or to take a cheap plot twist to invoke an emotion. There was a lot of a lot of open ended stuff, I thought, in this movie that that made you at least have the opportunity to draw some of your own conclusions and have the opportunity to evaluate the characters in your own way where we can sit here and say that this guy's unlikable or this guy had some redeemable qualities or this guy's um, moving on. I, I just one to me. And I'll just throw this right out there. Was we're getting to the very end of the movie. I like that Juliette uh, Binoche's character, uh, Hannah. Her journey is just beginning. You know, they could have stuck her on the back of Saeed's motorcycle and said, well, "Happily ever after. Move on. Thanks for your money." Um, I would have liked that. She, <laughs> <laughs> Same. which is fine. Same. But I I like that her journey is just beginning, and and she's. This this is shaping her life because that's what a lot of like the war was is that a lot of people meeting each other that are, are stuck in this area from other parts of the world. And then they have to go into their real life and go back home and, and take whatever they whatever experience they had there, which wasn't necessarily in their control to begin with, and, and now start their, the next portion of their life. And I, I kind of liked that about the ending itself. I mean, that, that's that's just for me. It's funny. And I, I know these movies are not the only thing that relates these movies together is, is World War Two. But um. There's a very best years of our lives kind of attitude to that, right? That that yeah. you know these men have, have are just coming home from the experience, and now it's the next thing. And and you know and um, I you know I don't mean to rat out my wife here, but she loves a wrapped up in a bow kind of ending. But I, but Karen, I'm with you. Sure. I do like the idea that the movie that we don't see is the story is the story that awaits her, you know, after the credits roll, so oh, to speak. But that's so hard. I don't like the unknown. It's like, <laughs> I just want to. I just spent three hours of my time here. Yeah. Just tell me that they live happily ever after. And and and, and what about the thought, though? I'm sorry, Grant, to cut you off. I was gonna, but what about the thought, though, that the item she takes with her is that book? And though we have a, a kind of tough, unlikable, semi-irredeemable character in, in, in Ray Fiennes' guy, what if his character arc is is her learning from the mistakes of him obsessing about the ghosts of his past and, and learning how to get over her issues that, you know, she, her, she's just going to, just her presence is going to cause people to, to, to explode or whatever, or whatever it is. I, I think a lot of that is, is leading into her journey beyond that. What, what I was going to say is that it's much like after a war, like kind of Adam was alluding to, there's a lot of uncertainty with <clears throat> where you're going to end up. Hannah's character is a perfect encapsulation of that. One of the things that uh, that that you guys over at One Thousand and One by One talk about w w pertaining to score, score is something we we talk about a lot here, mm. and you guys give John Williams a, a hard time. I, I think uh, I, I think that we're largely John Williams lovers here. I grant I know you are. So he scored some of your favorite movies. Yeah. Um, I love the Jurassic Park style score of. You know, you're leaving the movie theater humming, dun, 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 dun. Um, but I thought that this score was like the anti-John Williams score. It was incredibly subdued. It took a step back into silence in areas where you expect the strings to be pumping. 
when I saw this one for best score before I rewatched this movie, I was expecting to get hit in the face with a wannabe Lawrence of Arabia. And honestly, I had the exact opposite experience. I, I was like, kind of had to like remind myself to check out to the score in the middle of this movie and left pretty impressed. I wanted to hear your thoughts, Adam, on the score as a whole. It was an award-winning score. Um, I think kind of widely one of the more remembered parts about this movie. What did you think about the score? Oh, well, that's interesting. I actually think the score, in a way, is one of the more forgettable parts of the movie, but not in a negative mm. way. I, I don't think the score is bad. I will say that the um, the opening moments of the movie where we're seeing the painting being drawn and the, and the, the singing comes up and then the score, kind of, and we kind of get led into the score, I initially was like, this movie can go fuck itself. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was trying way too hard. Um, but as the, I, as the movie, say, I, what my first note was, Oh boy. <laughs> I was just like, this is going to be a long movie if this is how we're starting. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think the score, um, surfaces the movie in an unobtrusive way. It, it is not, the score is not trying to make itself. And again, it, I feel like, okay, come on, John Williams. He's he's what he's scored like a trillion fucking movies like and I'm totally I'm a hypocrite because I think the E.T. score is too much. But I love the Jurassic Park score. So who am I? To, who am I to talk about John Williams? But I feel like typically <laughs> his scores end up being like another character in the movie. Like you remember. Yeah, them yeah. Which I like. Characters. I personally like yes. that. Yes. And in this movie, it was just kind of like. I, I think it like I, the plot. It was just kind of not all there. Oh, not I in a bad way. I disagree. I don't though. think it was in a bad way. I just am like, I don't know. I was really glad that it didn't. I, in a movie that's this long, I was really glad that the score didn't. I don't know. Is over bombard a word? I don't know. It didn't make me feel like I was being blasted by an orchestra, which I actually. Yeah, it wasn't intrusive. Yeah. See, and it I think intrusive. I would have liked a little more of that. I don't know. It's specifically with like. I don't, I don't know. It's just kind of like how big everything else scene wise. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. Um, That's okay. I, I just felt like I would have wanted more of it. The, my, my issue with the score was that it was the same, it was the same movement just played over and over again that just was kind of used as an exclamation point to mm. certain, either a dialogue or things that happened within the plot. And that to me was kind of grating. That to, mm. that to me it was just like, like when, when they chose to, to have like the big, da, 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 you know, however, however it goes, just the constant use of that, over and over again, kind of, kind of made me angry. Wow! <laughs> I, okay. I, I wish, I wish there was a little bit more variety to, to the score itself. So that I mean that elicited three very different answers from the three of you guys. <laughs> so we have the whole four of us had very different experiences with the score. Which I mean, if you're asking me, I think means that it was probably an intricate enough score to, to elicit four different reactions because I think there's a version of this podcast where had that score been different, I'm getting hit with a ton of, Oh my God, here's more David lean wannabe like the in your face, John Williams ish telling me how to feel because this movie lent toward a tell you how to feel score. Right, and it, it, it stepped yeah. away from that. Listen, ah, God, I mean, I just thought that there were some really nice moments in this that weren't, overly emotional the the planes the the dry, flying side by side with each other taking the the camera out that's that type of stuff visually to me is is stuff i love just because i i in a cgi world where we don't get a lot of that the practical plane crash at the end there's no movie today 
maybe a Christopher Nolan movie, I guess, that films a scene that way where you're using old junkyard pieces of a plane. You're actually crashing a plane, using little miniatures to show the scene. I mean, that's an expensive, obnoxious, painful ordeal to come up with. And I think it looks great. And yeah, just, I, think, I think Fury Road comes to mind. Same cinematographer, oh, I know. too. Yeah. You know, um, How and, dare you roll your eyes on Christopher Nolan? How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. It, just, it was just a, you know, it was like an allergic reaction. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Speaking of allergic reactions, just to throw a little, a little, a little English patient fact out at you. Ray finds us wearing that, that bodysuit makeup for as many days in a row. That when they're filming his escape scene there at the end, because I think this movie, a lot of this movie was filmed in order, um, he was breaking out in these horrific rashes and was just, you know, they had to like cover it up and he was just, and they hurt and he was just in pain the entire time. <laughs> that he used that in the train escape scene to like, as a source of agitation to the point where the crew was was concerned that he was actually going to hurt that poor soul that he was trying. He was choking with oh, the, God. like, he, that's how convincing, like, they knew how angry he was, and that's how convincing he was in that scene. The actor was perfectly fine, nothing, there was no, no injury. But the, everyone looking is like, oh my God, he's going to actually kill this guy. <laughs> well, I think that that's a side effect of, I think, him trying to be, like, uber actor, because I, I read in the research that even in the scenes where it was only his face that was covered in the burns, he requested that the full body burn be placed on him so it seems it, it almost seems like karma kind of coming back and biting him in the ass a little <laughs> yeah. bit method actoritis and, and, and that's like that's like six hours of makeup at like four o'clock in the morning Ugh. too like that is a huge ordeal i was just gonna say i'm surprised we've made it this far do you know i mean I, I mean i mean you guys might know this so if you if you do don't answer this but do you know who turned down the role of amashi no no Oh, the 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 the, the absolute Damn method it. actor Daniel Day Lewis. D Day, huh? DDL that was is, offered that the is role interesting. and turned it down. And in a very real way, this 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 role seems it right up so his alley. far up his alley. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised he didn't take it. What was what was he doing in '90s? What was he doing in '96? He actually was playing. He he played one of the iconic stage roles on film. He played John Proctor in The Crucible. Oh, okay. Well, there you have it. Yeah. yeah it, this seems this seems like a role that is just begging for a, a Daniel Day Lewis performance. And I don't that know. Seems yeah, I don't know what it is about the the DDL mystique. Where it's like, I feel like if he plays this role, it's like, fuck, oh, we'll just give him the Oscar nomination. We don't even need to see the of finished course. movie. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're mailing it to Tunisia as he's filming. <laughs> they're like, here you go. Here you go. Here you go, Danny boy. Funnily enough, The Crucible was, is, like a, is a very uh, forgotten movie of the 90s. Have you seen it? Yeah. I, th I think I may have seen it in high school. Like, That's where I saw as, it. Like in, in class. Well, I think we read reread the the play. But was was Winona Ryder in that yes, one? Yes, she was. Okay. Yep. And Joan Allen. Yeah. The, the great Joan Allen. Oh, Joan Allen. I love her from Face Off. We saw we saw Joan Allen um in oh, a in play the, in at Chicago. Steppenwolf in Chicago. She was phenomenal. Magnificent. That's great. I would love to break down the uh the intricacies of of this thing even more, but I think we can move into awards pretty soon. I do have a couple of random questions to throw out there just cuz we have to cover all the stops here. Yes. We love to have very heated debates here and there's a couple civil wars we have going on. How do you guys feel about milk love in it. general? 
Pro milker. Love <laughs> like it. Milk, okay, like we got milk, one pro milker. Milk yeah, like a glass, like a nice cold glass of milk. Um, possibly with an Oreo, possibly without an Oreo. Whatever. I, I get the weirdest. Adam, yes. Me and my girls get the weirdest cravings for milk at the weirdest times. And we'll pour a big glass and we drink it like we haven't had anything to drink in days. Like we chug it. <laughs> This is great. And every time that Joey happens. just yeah, Joey just swerved Joe, off the road Joey's listening dry to this. Right now. I, I, I gotta be honest, I never I never crave milk to drink. I don't think I've ever seen you yeah, I, drink a glass of milk. Wow. No, no, we no, have no, a but, but we have a true pour, BPC split here. I like this. Pour it in his cereal I, and drink I, it like after he eats all his cereal. I he'll certainly drink it. I certainly am a yeah. fan of the the vibe the like you know, the side of like What's the, what am I trying to think? Like how milk is as a as the next of thing. Like like milk with cereal or yeah or dunking a cookie in milk. I am I ever drinking a glass of milk? Uh, no. no. Melissa, you just did a motion right there okay. that I'm gonna have a follow up question on. <laughs> you were talking about cereal and you lifted the bowl up and you drank the bowl as a glass there. Now do you do that? He does. Oh, I do. Oh, yeah, I I gotta I, say I do that too. I do too. Yeah. And I have caught shit for that. People have told oh me, God, people have actually told me, and this listener's out there maybe on the side, so I don't want to alienate anybody, that the civil way to finish a, a bowl of milk is to spoon no, it out. Bull- no, bullshit. Fuck that. Bullshit. Fuck that. That's yeah. bullshit. I'm not one of those people, though, that dump a whole bunch of milk in. Like, I'm <clears throat> a really good, I have perfect ratio. So at the end of my cereal... <laughs> I like I like, this. I like I have this. perfect ratio. <laughs> Our kids will eat bre- eat cereal. And Adam will stop them at the end because our oldest will like with her spoon and Adam will be like, that is not how you do it, Stella. <laughs> and he's like, put your spoon down and drink it. Like, well, drink what, it. What, what I have, we, we, got, my, we got my daughter a, uh, a Paw Patrol cereal bowl that has a built-in straw. Mm-hmm. So all she has to do is like tip it a little yeah. bit, and then she just drinks from the straw. Okay, and so we're evolving a little bit. When as a she species, gets a little so older, like she's not gonna. You're not gonna have like an eight year old girl I'm, drink it out of straw. You're gonna be like, you're gonna drink turns, out of that. When bowl. she when she turns five, when she turns five, I'm throwing that bowl out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <We had> <laughs> she's drinking out of the bowl. Yeah. I'll Grow tell up. you who spoons. Yeah, I'll tell you who spoons out a cereal, and that's Colin Firth. There's no doubt he's got. He's spooning out every inch. He looks, he looks like a spooner. Yeah, he, he looks like a spooner. I'm, I'm going to ask you, because we haven't talked about Colin Firth yet, so I'm going to briefly ask you about that. I'm just covering the last stops here before we move on. Before I do that, can either of you explain to me what condensed milk is? Um. Well, so we... Because I don't know. Okay, so I... Okay. Oh, well, that's that. Th- okay. That's two different questions right there. It is. What is what is condensed milk? I have no idea. We have idea. no idea. What do we use oh. condensed milk for? So We make the best homemade ice cream without an ice cream maker. And it's a can of sweetened Ooh. condensed milk. You dump it in a bowl. Mm-hmm. And then you take half a pint of, I- of ice cream. You of, take half a pint of, of heavy, heavy whipping, whipping cream. cream. You dump that okay. in. You do like two... It's two tablespoons. Two tablespoons of any hard alcohol you want we've tried it all anyone is fine and that's just so like when you freeze it it doesn't turn rock hard yeah and then you do like a tablespoon of vanilla with or it's, some it's, cinnamon it's or whatever you want to add like if you want to add berries before and, or if you want to add oh. candy and then and so, you just like whip it up for like two minutes with a whisk a normal whisk you put it in a container you put it in your ice cream and you have like the mix between Gelato and ice cream. It's just the guys. It seems like a big commodity in this movie here, where they're they, they're, listen, they're hoarding Kip, the condensed. Kip loves condensed milk sandwiches. That, Again, that's, that's what I have no I, knowledge to what condensed milk is. I look. I googled it, and it kind of looks like grilled cheese. Huh. Ugh. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We'll have Joey try it. Hopscotch? Melissa, can you help me with hopscotch? Well, I don't understand the rules of it. I've never understood the rules of it. Hopscotch. The, uh, I, the, the way do I you keep it. score? What is with the throwing the thing on there? What? So, tell me. What? I, I, I this has been going on for many years for me. I need, I need to know. I don't know if this is how you play it, but I believe what you do is you have your hopscotch board, and yeah. you have a rock. I think that's just what we used to do. And you throw it and it has to land in a square and you have to hopscotch to it, <laughs> pick it up and then hops- you have to pick it up with one with foot one on the foot. ground. And you then- pick it up mid, mid scotching. Yes, yes. But you can't mid hopping. You can't land in the square that it's in and then you pick it up and then you hopscotch out of it. At least that's what well, we yeah, that's, did. That's how, that's, that's, how, that's how Hannah was doing it. Yeah. Right. I, well, I also, I think part of it though is that I th- well, I- each square has a number, and that's how you win. It's like whoever has the most numbers at the end. Oh, like, the further you throw oh. it. The- See, I thought- so there is a score. I thought there is a score. So. Like, the further you throw it. Again, no, no, no. I don't know if I've played it right. I no. don't do it's, anything right in life oh so, my god shut the fuck um, i was scared that, that there was that, a score that's no no I, I i thought you played with people and that you didn't throw your own your own beanbag or whatever or rock into oh. it that somebody threw it for like and then you had to like, oh well, you like, had to pick it up wherever it well, was i didn't so, have friends growing up oh like, <laughs> <laughs> i do want to i do want to end on a, a quote here and I'll, I'll let you guys comment on it too because this is the filmmaker kind of calling himself out but, you know, definitely in a little bit of a self-indulgent way. But I, I think it explains some of his approach here with some of the characters. And I, I kind of liked it. It was enough for me to highlight and, and read out here. And this is uh, Anthony Magella talking about his, his characterizations of the multiple people here within this. One of my failings as a filmmaker and dramatist is that I can't bear the monolithic nature of Hollywood films that essentially get interested in one person and tells you the film through the attention of one or two people. I love the fact that in the real world, everyone thinks that they're a leading character. There's nobody in any part of any world who doesn't think that the world is theirs. I think a film ought to reflect that, and stories ought to reflect that too. So whether or not English Patient achieved that, what do you guys think about that in the sense? And does it explain how maybe how some of the some of the the characters were a little half baked in this thing? Okay, so I would I would love to jump into that because uh, from one of the texts that I teach from, we talk about the difference between egocentrism and egotistical. And egocentrism is that idea you're talking about that we are all the center of our own universe and that we are we are the star of our own show, right? And that essentially the world revolves around us and because that is literally how we live as people we see the world sure. through our eyes and everybody else is a supporting character in our story egotistical is the person who believes that their story is the most important story so that idea of of each character kind of having a moment to shine through is exactly the kind of thing that like i teach in intro to acting that you should literally mm. see the world through your character because that is the most important thing. Sorry, I just wanted to jump out because that's so topical right now because I'm teaching intro. And yeah, I'm like, cool. Yes. Awesome. That's great. I love that. That's great. I love that. I, 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 do, I do like his point about having multiple points of view, things like that. Again, I think most of the time on the movie is spent on the wrong couple, but that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's just, you know. Um, and he, he expanded a little bit on just saying that, and, and kind of criticizing this patient along the way, but he, he said he liked how the idea, uh, and this is how he approached the character was, 
He liked the idea of that if you kept the camera on Kip, on Saeed, the whole movie, that there's a story to tell there. And he wanted that character to portray that. And I think he achieved that with this movie because I think that I think that there was a little bit left to be desired with that character. Like we're saying, oh, we wanted the camera to stay on him a little bit and we wanted to fumble a little bit. He said, though, that when you have that approach, your film run. There's a reason that films of the past and the Hollywood films of the past do the one, two character point of view approach is you run the risk of your film being decentralized. And that word is interesting because I think that that's not a terrible way to describe the English patient. I think the English patient gets a little decentralized, for, for better or for worse. Well, I'll tell you what, he's going to love Valentine's Day, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is as decentralized as it gets. Oh, God. Um, I, I, I can't move on without talking Colin Firth really fast. The character, anything, did we like the casting? I mean, I think the stuffy British foil is always a good move for him. I did like it. I mean, I, I, he wasn't like an amazing character, but I, I thought he was well cast for that character. And I felt bad for him. Yes! I actually yes! really did. I was like, I don't know how else to say other than I really felt bad for him and what he had to see. Yeah, and, and all kidding aside, like, you know, I think that when you're doing a movie that's, that's centered around an affair, you know, it's very easy to, to do the, oh, how romantic and how passionate and how sexy. It's like, yeah, but ugh, this is ruining someone's life. And there was a moment in this movie that I thought was like pretty, pretty brilliant in its, in its emotional beat is that you have the, the, the sex scene where, you know, they, he, he pulls her out of work and she fakes a, a passing out or whatever. And Colin first shows up in a Santa Claus suit. Mm -hmm. I mean, not subtle, but like, how about like a moment of like, oh, fuck, Santa's here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Claus just got boned. Well, um, yeah, I mean, like. It's like in that moment, what we as the audience see moments before and then he walks into it and your heart breaks just because you're like oh oh and he's dressed as santa so you're like oh no yeah it's like, like oh my god this is tough this is not christmasy at all the scene when he's in the car and he's like so, eh. he's like she she always forgets our anniversary oh god and oh. he gets yeah. in the car and he's planning it and he gets in the car and then he, Ouch. he gets excited because he sees her run out but then he quickly realizes and like i, I don't yeah. know how but else then, to say but, but like the, my but then yeah, but then then he does a, a murder, an intended murder suicide, and all that gets washed away. Uh, it turns into a kamikaze pilot, you know, <laughs> at World War II time. Yeah. Not great. He's kind of like the the friend zoned guy who got defaulted into husbands. You know, he was like right. the shoulder well, to cry on. He yeah. says it. He's like, oh. oh, me and her, we were we were brother and sister before husband and wife, and like we both were like, Ugh. like we've known each other most of our lives, and we were like friends but definitely we, yeah, nowhere I would never close yeah exactly brother and exactly sister. yeah if we were like brother and sister there's no way we would be husband and wife right now yeah that's like, yeah it that, was that a little was, weird that's definitely off-putting he's like a friend zone survivor and uh and that's that leads to unfortunately it seems like that leads to 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 affairs later on which is not a great situation there okay we could put a rest a rest to the to the narrative here can we enter the nitpick zone is this is it time uh, I think it is. Keep, please keep all hands and feet inside the vehicles at all times.
in the nitpick oh. zone. Grant, you're clutching for papers to see. Oh, Adam is is the, the people are, go, are going. Yeah, I right. actually have some this time. No, no, I, I, Adam, you, start us off. Okay. This, this is your first entry. I don't think we were doing the nitpick zone at Ben Hur time. Yeah, you're, so. co- you're correct. And now, and now, I would really like to be proven. Actually, so this nitpick, I hope, is proven wrong. But I, I the best I, kinds. I would really like to. I'm going to ask a question first and make sure that my interpretation of a certain scene is interpreted correctly. So. The okay. scene that leads to the car accident in the desert that, that basically strands um, Amashi and Catherine in the desert. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that car accident occurs because there is a scene of flirtation between the driver and the, the guy that's on top. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. 100%. Okay, yeah. so my nitpick is that and again, and I, I, I realized I was this person on the Ben Hur episode who was like, "It's gay. It's a gay movie." Um, <laughs> but I have a big nitpick with the problem that it was essentially a homosexual relationship that caused the car accident. I'm not gonna lie. I, I wrote that note. Down. I was like, I whether or not it was intentional, I'm sure it wasn't. But I was like. A gay relationship is the reason why this car accident happened. I think it says a lot by saying it it's it's a little thing that says a lot. And honestly, it took me a while to get to move past it. I'm gonna put it out there. I had a big problem with that. Interesting. Okay, so I didn't I didn't pick up on the homosexual undertones. I thought it was more of a playful driver thing. Oh, no, I don't know it, if was, there was... it was it was totally gay. Um, yeah, yeah, it was okay. gay. It was, yeah. it was very like... gay. <laughs> Okay, yeah. All right. So in we're a in movie where there's it's so expansive, I was like, we're gonna hint at this gay relationship. It's gonna cause a car accident, and then oh fuck it, we're never gonna come back to this. I was like, yeah. what the fuck? It it never it doesn't it doesn't really pay off at all. Yeah, it doesn't at yeah. all. Yeah, you're you're right. Grant, what do you got? Okay, here's a big one. So he was on a he was in a plane that was that crashed and was on fire. How did the book and all the pictures not burn up? <laughs> that book is gone. That book is fucking gone. All those pages gone. The the, the Christmas cracker gone. Everything. That's fantastic. That's I, fantastic. Oh man, it does not survive. You brought up. Sorry, I'm, I I I don't know when I would have brought this up. So my my stepdad, my stepdad's side of the family is Canadian, and I don't know if you did this, but we. Every Christmas we had Christmas crackers, and every Christmas them, yeah. we wore those Christmas crowns. The, yep. Um, which I feel like is not an American thing at all. But every Christmas, from like the age of seven to eighteen, yep. or even even beyond that, we wore we those still crowns. Do it yeah. When we go there. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't. We do it at my my mom's house. I don't know why. We're all American. I don't know. It just it just. Maybe it's from the old country. I don't know. Chris G is our our in house French Canadian expert here. We'll have to consult him uh, after the after the fact here. So sure. we'll, we'll we'll put we'll put our people on that team. Um, I love that though, Grant. That's that's fantastic. I guess flesh burns faster than uh, paper. Paper. Yeah. I, just, I don't think so. Well, and that, <laughs> clearly that's like a book that's been with him. I I did think of that and was kind of like okay. Uh, it was in the yeah, back. That's, that's, it was in the way back of the plane that he somehow yeah, grabbed. It was, it was, in, the, it was in the trunk. <laughs> I want to talk about this great train escape here. So, what train traveling through the middle of fucking nowhere is moving slow enough for Ray Fines to safely jump off the back of it? That train was going. 15 to 20 miles per hour when he jumps off the back of that thing. And there is no stops. There is nothing in sight whatsoever. Book a, tra- 
Yeah. A train going through the plains of the desert is going to be cooking, baby. That shit is going to be moving. And if be, you jumped yeah. off the back of it, you're going to be obliterated. You're going to look better after uh, a fiery plane crash. I mean, uh, it's it's certainly, dude, he stepped up off of that thing. He stepped off of that thing. Pee Wee yeah. Herman had a tougher fall when he was, jump, <laughs> when he was jumping away from Jimmy Crack Corn. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I think it's, yeah, it should be moving like Snowpiercer. <laughs> Dude, yeah. They're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that pedal to the metal, baby. You're, you're if you're jumping off that thing, it's gonna hurt. How, how does? Yeah, I mean, how does that? I know, like, if you if you fall in the ocean and you're going fast, it feels like concrete. Is that the same principle with sand? Uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not questioning whether he could do it and still be able to walk. Okay. I'm just saying there's no way it would be traveling at the speed that we saw. That train was not moving very fast. That's 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 more of my nitpick. That's fair. Melissa, what you, you got anything for us? I don't know if this is going to be a bad one. But oh, shit. Oh, I really had an issue with the face. <laughs> this is going to sound so bad. The face that Ray Fiennes has as he dies. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, oh, yes. 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 That is a bad yes. face. It made my short list. One of it the did last notes I had, well, there were two last notes. So my last note was like, God damn it, Ray Fiennes. When he walks out of the, the cave holding her, I was like, oh, okay, you're tugging at my heartstrings. And immediately after, my note was, oh, God, his face <laughs> when he died. It was very Family Guy-esque, there, like, it was, like animated dead face. A thousand it was, it was, percent. I like, have that open, was, yeah. That was Stewie Griffin making <laughs> Yes, some, it was. <laughs> Uh, You're doing okay. You're <laughs> all right. It, it was like jarring in a way. Love it. I was just love like, it. That's, that's, love a, that. that's a yes. That was a that's a bad death face. Yeah. Adam, you got you got another one for us? I, I I only have so Melissa mentioned that we were practically brother and sister before we were husband and wife, which is which is just an mm. awkward thing to say. <laughs> I don't I don't really know. Gross. But um. I do. I, but, so I don't know if this is a nitpick. So, I mean, Colin Firth tries to kill Ray Fiennes' character with his plane and in doing mm-hmm. so kills himself. And I mean, not immediately, but essentially but, yeah, kills mortal, Catherine. Mortally wounding. Mortally wounding. It's a kamikaze pilot. And, yes. and I guess World my... World War II centric too. My, my nitpick is is the idea of trying to kill this guy, the, the ultimate goal, knowing that crashing your plane into sand is probably going to kill you and the person that you love. Because I realize that it, it ends up being a, a, quote, kamikaze mission. But I don't... He's not crashing the plane to kill himself he's crashing the plane to kill ray fines and in doing so kills the person that he loves i don't know well, i i had a problem with uh, that. I, I, I i i think he was just all three i think he just yeah wanted, and, and she all, says them all out it all to end uh, right. she yeah. says he was talking nutty you know she said he was talking nutty a little bit going into it or it was a little out of character that was a, that was a lost his mind situation i'm picturing the eminem song kim when, I, when i'm thinking oh like, wow like dragging Christ. dragging catherine to the plane like, that's what i'm thinking <laughs> oh my god like that's 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 it though stan too, <laughs> oh my god um, <laughs> but but like <laughs> it's, it's dark i mean what do you say yeah. oh my god is it bad that i actually know some of the lyrics to that song still that song is oh, it's dark a, holy that, shit that's, well, that that song that song sticks with you oh my god it's a song it's a song i only heard once and i'm like 
No. Wow. <laughs> you'll, you'll probably hear it again this year at the halftime show. He's going to play. He's gonna play uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Eminem. He's going to play Cam. He's going to play The Way I Am. He's going to play Marshall kill, Mathers. Kill just the he's two of us. Yeah. 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 Grant, what else do you have here? Yeah. Um, why the hell did the Germans put a bomb on top of that statue? <laughs> you got it. Oh, man. Because they had to That's get them brutal. when they were, like, like you know. But, like, what, like, uh, what, like, oh, I have an idea. Let's put the statue, let's put the bomb on top of the statue <laughs> in case they want to celebrate something. And they blow up. I mean, like, I, I don't understand. I don't understand the logic behind that. Why would they My put reaction, it in a, pl- a piano? Why would I can't even see? Yeah, like, I. I mean, it? listen. I can almost understand the piano because of like when you see a piano, you're not you're not gonna like not play with it a little bit. <laughs> I, I gotta <laughs> say though, like as much as I, I would, <laughs> as much as I agree. Like, I'm the same guy who would just, when I played Goldeneye, I would just put proximity mines everywhere I went. Like, That's give it fair. up. Statue That's on top yeah, of okay. the statue. Oh, okay. over there. Yeah, there but, it is. There. Okay, so pres- maybe the guy in it. Let's put it okay. here. Let's put it yeah, there. But pressing, but pressing the back trigger is a lot different than setting up a mine. You know what? Nope. Nope. I'm sorry. I'm with Karen on this one. You're going to put a mine wherever you think it makes sense. I'm with you. I'm the- with you. If you got mines, well, you can't take them home with you. You can't keep them. They, Let's. It doesn't make sense. And it does make I sense. I tell you, that's how I got some of my best golden <laughs> guy I kills, though. It, is that like no one would expect me to put it on the top of the statue? So the guy climbing the statue was like, "Ah, oh, how did sense. this get me?" Grant, I mean, they stuck it in the piano. Uh, clearly, you're you're somebody that would just play any piano, like touch it at some yeah. point. Um, a I statue. Would tinker, yes. I mean. If I'm celebrating and I see a statue that you can climb up, I'd probably climb up it too. Okay, Julie Epinoche. Oui. Oh my God. Oh my God. Everyone I meet dies. This is so horrible. I'm haunted and, and everything is going to be, is, is just, I, I can't meet anyone ever again. I just, my life is, is the worst. I'm haunted by these ghosts. Guy who diffuses bombs for a living comes walking through. <laughs> Ooh, he's sexy. Swipe right, swipe right. Here I come. Like, maybe why don't you just, like, try to romance a milkman or something here? Why are you going for the guy diffusing the bombs? Are you not maybe creating your own death situation here? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) I mean, all the viewers are looking at that going, oh, he's going to blow up. Well, okay, so it's tough because I think from a storytelling standpoint, we need that relationship for something that happens later. Yes. Okay. Okay. No. All right. I I mean, you know, again, nitpick zone here. Nitpick zone. Throwing it. Throwing it out there. I'm not saying there wasn't a thought behind it from a writing standpoint, but it is just a little bit like, come on, girl. Find some milkmen. Grant, you have any more? Yeah, the British officer at the end where Amashi um, was like trying to plead his case to get to find, you know, to get uh, a car to go get rescue Catherine. I think he was just being cavalier just for the plot's sake. No, no. Okay. And so, and this is, this is a problem I have with the movie is because I think part of what the movie is trying to, part of what I think makes the movie complex and i'm using air quotes here is this idea that you know he's this man from another land possibly and at the end of world war ii if you didn't have papers it was like who could you trust and i get the the movie is trying to make a point of it's the end of the war and if you can't prove where you're from you could possibly be the enemy but i think that that's i think it's ham-fisted i think it's i think yeah. what we get is this scene and it's like it's like dude you're being a dick to this guy yeah for no reason <laughs> okay, okay i got one last one just going to throw out there giant sandstorm 
Okay. Spent the night in the car. Car almost got buried. Um, we clearly know we're with other people here. Or maybe this is just me. It's, maybe it's just me. We get out and, okay, you want to run for help? That's great. Like, you shoot the flare, this, this, and that. Oh, now we're going to talk. Oh, can you put pictures in my book? If we go, yes, let me exchange pictures. Oh, my God, the other people, they're buried in sand. Like, dude, didn't you, wouldn't your first thought when you open the door be like, where the fuck's the other car people? Yeah. Like, like dude, they're buried alive like let's <laughs> dig them out you clearly are gonna flare at night later anyway like get them out of the sand i, under, I understand oh I understand their immediate panic and trying to get right but after that get the yeah but then he gets like the light bulb over his head oh my god well the other people and it's they're it's, buried in sand it's not even a light bulb it's hearing the honking, the honking. of the horn that <laughs> is true. what draws yeah. them over uh yeah they would have they died if they did not i mean horn. Come on, if I mean, there's not, I, yeah, if I they're guess... not honking that horn, those those two guys are they're dead. dead. Those three people are dead. Boy, that must have been very noisy in there. That's a lot of that's a lot of horn honking in there. So that's I mean, to me, I'm getting out of the car being like, where's the other car? Oh my god, it's buried in sand. They're buried alive. That's horrific. Let's get them out. That's the first thought for me. And, but and, I mean, and, you know, but you know what? would Karen, also be likable. You're yeah, you're a very yeah. nice person. Very much. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> so before we do we're just a, a couple of quick Twitter questions we got to throw out there. Tweet, tweet. Let's start with Zeta Short, who has uh, been with us here before. She's a part of our rom-com tournament. Would you like to see the version of this movie that would have starred Demi Moore in the Kristen Scott Thomas role? Thoughts? Okay, okay. Here it is. Here it is. Here's my hot take. I think Kristen Scott Thomas is terrible in this movie. Ooh. Honestly, wow. I, I think she is the weakest link by... By a by a country mile, and to answer to answer Zita's question, yes, I would have taken anybody else in this movie over Chris. And and I like Kristen Scott Thomas. I don't like what she's bringing to the movie. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I disagree. I just I liked her performance. I just you know I I, I can't speak to your experience with it. I I thought she was believable. I thought she was unconventionally attractive. I know she's not like your typical typical oh, person they'd stick yeah. in that role. I know that she basically begged to be in the spot. I mean, it was, they did not want to cast her, whereas the Julia Panache role was more or less written for her. Like, he had her in mind. He was rewritten for her. It was supposed to be an Italian actress. Oh, wow. They made it French-Canadian just to fit her style. Had a, had a connection with the character. I guess her, um, her, her father passed in a plane crash or whatever it was, and that, that tied her to it. And she begged to be in the role to the point where, like, she wrote letters mean, to, uh, to be mean, in it. Yeah, I mean, Chris and Scott Thomas. Chris and Scott Thomas. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Chris and Scott Thomas. And uh, wrote letters to be in, in that spot. And then they, even after that, they tried to cast other people. I think, I guess, Demi Moore. I, I don't know if that's what Zita's alluding to there. I thought she played it pretty close to home. I mean, I don't think she deserved the Oscar. Uh, but I thought she deserved the Oscar nomination. And that was just my take. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate her performance. Was Demi Moore supposed to play an American or a British? Like the, I guess I, a British person. It I, sounds I, like that could have been a train wreck. Person. I, I don't. Like, I don't uh, know if I don't know how Demi Moore's at accents, how her accent work is. I don't know if it's like Melissa that does like a Cockney <laughs> kind of thing. Right? Probably. I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't see Demi Moore in that role, I can't see and I it. couldn't see her with both of the men. I don't know. I'm kind yeah. of like going. I don't see this woman being with these guys. She's like two. She's like, yeah, yeah I get it. I have to agree with you where I, I think I, she should have been nominated for the role because I also, I, I, I enjoyed her performance. I wouldn't have given her an Oscar for it, though, 
is my, no. you know. Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're alone um, on that one. I'm fine. I love the different takes, though. Beast asks, is this a Tom Riddle origin story? <laughs> so I saw this question today and had no fucking clue what he was talking about. And Grant Z here responded, you know I'll bring up Tom Marvalo Riddle and still had no idea what the fuck anyone was talking about. And then our own Steve B responded, Kieran B will not be happy. I'm all for it. In which I immediately knew that this was either Harry Potter or Marvel related. So I, I was is, instantly this Harry So Potter. go ahead. Is it a prequel of... Uh, There's a really bad anagram. No, go, it's, Grant, go ahead. Yeah, so Tom Marvolo Riddle is an anagram for I am Lord Voldemort. <laughs> that is the anagram. Uh, it, is, it is the most... It is a cl- I love Harry Potter. Me too. And uh, but like, goddamn, it is some of the clunkiest shit ever. That just doesn't make any sense. I think he's. I think he's fantastic as as Voldemort. I love. I love his. I love his performance in it. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. That that's it. That's it, Kieran. That wasn't so bad. <laughs> I just have nothing to add. I'm gonna say. Abacadabra. Tim Rothfuss asks. How thankless is Colin Firth's role in this? And I'll say before we say it, Steve B. also responds to that one. And he goes, never leave your girl alone with Rafe in the desert. Um, okay. <laughs> it seems like good advice. Can I can I go off this one first? Because yeah. here in the St. John household, we have one rule. And the rule is the St. John's never separate. Mm. We could be in a horror situation. We could be stranded in the desert with sexy Ray Fiennes standing right there. <laughs> you don't separate. You just don't do it. <laughs> so yeah, you don't, I, you don't. You don't go on expeditions to Ethiopia. And then yeah, and th- but then tell her you're going somewhere else. Like where did he say he was going? Didn't he say he's just going? He said he was I don't going know. to Cairo. I I had the instant thought of like, wait, what are you leaving her behind for, dude? Yeah. So yeah. he got raped. Um. <laughs> What, is it that's, a th- that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> My mic picked up the F. He got raped. Um, but uh, oh, <laughs> thankless. Was it a thankless role? Oh, I, I lost both freezers. Um, no, I, it's, uh, no, I don't think it's a thankless role because at this point, Colin Firth is not the name that we know him to be. Um, I think it's a great stepping stone role for Colin Firth. No, I yeah. mean I mean in terms of the movie maybe, but it's also pretty memorable. He fucking kamikazes a plane into the fucking sand. No, I don't. I don't think it's sure. a thankless role. Agreed. Now, just just talking about like the progress of best picture winners, I got to throw out. First of all, I, had, I just had a, a a funny thought about driving over to it. I'm like, "Wow. This leads into the next four best picture winners having the main characters in adulterous relationships." If you think about it, you have Titanic is the next yeah. one. After that, you have Shakespeare in Love, sure. Colin Firth getting raped again, and then you have you got, you got and Joseph. then you have um you got Joseph yeah you got, uh, but but fines but got, it was another fines it was got, the, another fines fine. brother got him you got fines um and then you have um you have uh, American Annette Beauty. Benning in in American Beauty. Adultery so, was all the rage in the yeah. In the it, mid to it, late it, led, 90s. it led to I mean maybe it was that that Clinton era I don't know anyway oh. um. <laughs> I do want to ask this, though. Was the English patient the lead blocker for Titanic to be the next wave? Because you, you're just it, it, it leads the way for a couple things here. Obviously, Titanic's a far more entertaining movie. It's hard to argue against that. You have the, the, the runtime. Yeah. 
the big the big sweeping epic. romance yeah. epic and you have the idea that you have to go to the theaters to see this big thing like i i it almost in a way is just it's it creates a wave i wonder how the two movies would have been received if you flip flop the years if you put titanic first oh, in english patient that's, next. that's I, easy I, yeah 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 that's easy i think if titanic comes out first english patient does not have the success it has yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But agree. does Titanic sweep the Oscars and get as many nominations as it does if it's before The English Patient? Yep. Yeah. You think it does? Yep. For, you think for, it does? for two reasons. One, James Cameron. And two, the fact that Titanic was PG-13 and appealed to a much younger audience as well as adults. Yeah. Interesting. And you're following Braveheart, so it's not like a that's not Braveheart to Titanic's not a huge That's another lead. adulterous relationship. <laughs> Braveheart. Wow, so we can tack another year yeah. in there. What is yeah. it? A prima nocta? Is that what it is? Uh, no, no, like when the princess when the princess sleeps with William Wallace. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right, yes. Well yeah, yeah, prima nocta too is a well, one last Twitter question here. We have Jeffrey Care at Jeffrey Care S. And it's a, this is an interesting question, too, because I did not – I saw – this was a, this one came in late here. And um, I, I had this thought during the movie, and I did not know that this was a thing. But here – apparently it is. I'm just trusting the Twitter question here. What are your thoughts on the television miniseries adaptation that's in the works? There's apparently a, a, a TV adaptation of The English Patient in the works. Good. I did have the thought – that this would work a little better and could be fleshed out a bit more within a, a, a series format, a Netflix series format. Oh, good. A longer English patient. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of do agree that this would work better in a, in a, a TV format. Yeah, and for sure. Yeah. I don't think that, there's, that you guys are going to be watching this series, it seems like, but I, I probably will check it out. I don't know. It depends on I'd what. I'd check it out. Yeah. I probably would. I all right, all right. Yeah. He, like, this movie was not a bad movie. It was just, like, what what I was expecting, which I guess I, I really honestly can't even put into words what I was expecting. Again, it just comes down to, like, how every other thing in this movie, spectacle-wise, or where it was at when you're looking at the screenplay and, like, the characters and kind of the plot that sort of it just didn't match for me so it was it, it was off it was just off kilter yeah I, I think i think a series will be beneficial because because the three of us were saying like okay well things weren't really developed and you know they could explore more themes and things like that and i i think um it would benefit greatly for a you know, for like a miniseries, right. something like that. Yeah. Our own Oz did ask, and Grant, you kind of addressed this already. Is this a better movie if Mangella leaned into the Hannah Kip relationship a bit more? Or is my love for all things lost swaying my opinion? It seems like you agree that with that, Grant. Oh, yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you yeah. guys too. Yeah. yeah. And the word like leaning into implies to me, though, that you're going to make this movie longer. And I think the movie needed to be shorter. I do think that it could have been edited in a more Kip Hanna friendly way for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, I do think that's a magnificent scene where they lift, where he lifts her up oh, into the great. thing and she's looking at the painting. I liked the appreciation for, for music and, and art and books and literature in this. I, I, I think there was a lot of ideas in this movie that could have been fleshed out a little better from a music standpoint. I want to throw out a couple of, a couple of things. 
We get another Silent Night appearance in this. We, That's we, true. we had it going my way. We get another God Saves the... It was God Saves the King in this God one. God Saves the King. As opposed right. to God Saves the Queens. So we've had a couple of these songs repeat. We do hear a few right. versions of Cheek to Cheek. The Fred Astaire movie Top Hat, which is also nominated for Best Picture yeah. in uh, 1935. So... Another uh, a Best Picture nom callback. Let's head into awards here now. We'll start with MVP. Uh, Melissa, you are the um, you are the uh, the BPC rookie here. Let's have you go first. Who is your MVP oh. of the English Patient? Good, Kip. Saeed. It was yeah. him, and I have to say, a real like another relationship I like that wasn't a very obvious one was I say it was Kip and his partner. But who was that other guy that was with him? That was um, Hardy. Oh, poor Hardy. Just, yeah, who's um, goddamn oh, statue climber. Yeah, yeah. He got proximity mind. He got proximity. His fiance got proximity mind. Golden eye style. <laughs> They're kind of banter, little banter, or it was like looks that they had back and forth. I, I just, I, I really appreciated and liked. But I, Kip just was a character that we didn't see a lot. Like we didn't learn a lot about him. But oh my gosh, in every scene he's in, I'm just like want like i was like striving to learn more about who this character yeah. is yeah great choice yeah. boy that, that that hardy character was right out of a david lean movie though i mean you could see jack hawkins walking right in oh, and playing that, jack that role in a yes. second yes. that was so david leanish that character I would, I would agree with that um okay great choice for mvp we'll slide over to the next freezer here adam what uh who's your mvp uh the only actor to win an award for this and that's julia pinoche I think I think she has the biggest, clearest, and most expressive character arc. And God, what a just what a what a wonderful presence to have on screen, especially coming back from the the story happening in the past. When we got back to the sort of the present, it just wonderful every time to see her. Uh, Grant MVP. Uh, I'm with Adam here. It's Julia Pinoche. Yes, love it. Uh, yeah, for 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 everything he said, uh, she would get a second nomination in Adam's favorite movie of all time, <laughs> Chocolat. <laughs> <laughs> My MVP here in this one, John Seal, the cinematographer. I thought the movie was captured in an old school epic manner. We can accuse it of aping the 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 David Lean style, but there's some unapologetic camera work in this one here that I, I just love. If we're, if we're talking about filming the planes in the air, walking cliffside along the along the cave, Karen Kristen Scott Thomas. I mean, it's geez, man. I, there's just there's the movie is really goes all in with with the filmmaking for me, and and I think it takes a. Um, it takes a, a cinematographer like John Seal to get it done. One of the things that the director said about the team he had around him is, is that he wanted to have people who knew more about him than in every facet of it, whether it was the costume design, whether it was the editing or, or the cinematography. And, and I thought John Seal was the, the captain of that team there. So um, yeah, cinematography to me is the MVP. We'll go LVP next. Grant, I'm going to kick it off to you. What do you have for LVP? I went with the um, the lack of chemistry between Fines and... Kristen's got uh, got Thomas. Yeah, you know, for for this movie to be this such an epic rom this epic romance, um, I found the relationship to be kind of bland and unbelievable. I can't fight that. It it worked for me. Certainly wouldn't be like an an LVP for me, but I can see someone's take on that. You know, the the Elaine take definitely uh, definitely Just a die already. Adam LVP. I I know it, this might seem. I mean, it, honestly, it's it's. It's Kristen Scott Thomas. And I think it's not even yeah. necessarily her as an actress. Cause I think in 
Four Weddings and a Funeral, and in Gosford Park, and in, in a severely underrated movie from the, the 2000s, Life is a House. I think she's a great actress. I think her her arc in this movie is limited. I think that's also a that's a byproduct of the screenplay, but I, I just didn't find her charming or captivating or the object of Ray Fine's desire in this movie. And 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 for all of those reasons, Kristen Scott Thomas is my LVP. Um so it's a kind of a almost a version of Grant's LVP too there. You know, if you mix the chemistry it's in with a, it's the a specific bit, yeah. performance. Yeah. I, I, I see I see that. Melissa, here you go. You're punching your first LVP in, in the B, the BPC archives here. I monumental moment. I, I have to say it would be the screenwriter or That's, that yeah, yeah Anthony McGella. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's not much more to say other than that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, you've you've uh, expressed that from the For start. For reasons expressed. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pinned in a corner what here. About, what about you? I'm, I'm the one dying in the cave here during this episode. Uh, all right, so my LVP is a, a character and an actor that we have not even discussed to show you the amount of value he has had in this. And um, that is the Maddox character here, played by Julian Wadham, who is Ray Fine's kind of partner who Willem Dafoe just dramatically says, oh yeah, by the way, he killed himself, just so you know. How do you feel now, you, you burnt piece of toast? Um, it, dude, come on. We got a lot going on in the screenplay here. We got a lot of guys shoehorned into this thing. Like, we need this other guy, Maddox, going on. Apparently he was more in the source material, was more of a, uh, more of a relevant thing. The cat, the act, the casting of the actor is just so poorly. The guy's so forgettable. He's he's a a very generic actor plugged into a spot that we're supposed to care about at the end that we don't because we're trying to figure out who he's even talking about. <laughs> um, that that whole entity there missed big swing and a miss for me. Total total LVP, no value there whatsoever. The participation award. Let's throw a little love to someone, anyone at all. Um, and my mine, I'll just say right out here is uh, is Melissa's MVP, and that is our boy from Lost. Saeed, he's Kip, he's Naveen Andrews, just a, a, a great actor who's who ages real well moving into Lost to becoming the beloved Saeed. So that, that's my participation over there. Grant? Mine's um, pretty much the same, only I want more specifically uh, Kip's luxurious hair. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> because those, I mean, I'm so jealous of his, of his locks. Yeah, a lot of hair washing in this movie. There's even like reference to hair washing and how difficult sure. it is. And I guess oh, me, yeah. me and Melissa are the are the only two that have to suffer through the long hair washing. Well, I was going just gonna tell you, I was so. like, yeah, it's it's a process. And when you've got long hair, it is. It's you need not great. conditioner, yeah. and then you have to brush it, and sometimes you have to put a hair mask on. Like, yeah, you know. Do you, now have you ever put olive oil in your hair? I yes, and I've also put mayonnaise and beer. <laughs> mayonnaise. <laughs> God, I've done the beer and I've done the lemon juice. Well, the mayonnaise actually is really good for um, really dry, brittle hair. Interesting. Yeah. Participation award. Adam. Yeah, I, we'll make it a clean sweep. It's it's Naveen Andrews, hands down. Yes. Mm. He, he, he brings it. He's awesome. He's great. Uh, he's going to come up later again in, in, in some of my awards. He's, he's fantastic. And Melissa. Well, I, I have two, kind of. Am I allowed to have two? Yeah, already does that. All uh, the time. I mean, yeah, oh, but okay, yeah, that's that's. Um, I'll pull an Um, the first is makeup participation for that because it was okay. It, Great. You know, and then my like kind of funny one, but I I do the harness that hoists her up and she swings around 
What a system. Vic- to climb up and jump down right? to lift is great. Yeah. Great stuff. Very beautiful. That's amazing. Bravo. Yeah. Like yeah. I love it. Well done. Well done. And I love the participation going to an aspect of the movie, a movie that was awarded for everything, just one little aspect that it didn't even get a nomination <laughs> yeah. for. So that's a true participation word right. spirit. I love that. Okay. So quote of the movie. Do we have some quotes to throw out there? I have one. That, okay. That yeah. like. All right. Melissa, go first. Go. It's technically it's two. I'm pulling another already, but it's, it's combined <laughs> into one. It only makes sense altogether. It's a conversation. Yes. So yeah. uh, it's, it's Fines and Binoche and he says, why are you keeping me alive? And she just simply is like, because I'm a nurse. I don't know what it was about that back to back with the two of them, but it was so, it was so real and raw. Yeah. And it kind of made me like wonder this whole movie too. I'm like, why did you stay? Like, why, why with the dying man, why would you stay here and by yourself? And like, God knows what could happen, but it really like brought it back to me. And like, this is, this is like a part of her and this is what she, yeah. For me, I was like, that's stay. That's, that's phenomenal. For sure. Bravo to this one moment for the playwright. Or great scene, whatever. In a very theatrical right. state of mind, but yes, you're a, the the one Bravo to your LVP. There we go. Um, Adam, so quote, quote. Yeah. So so my quote comes from um, we've we've met Colin Firth, we've met Kristen Kristen Scott Thomas, and uh, Almashi is very reluctant to having them there. And um, uh, Maddox is talking about like, well, we have this plane. It's important. And, and it's such, we get to this quote where um, Amashi says, if you, if you could explore from the air, life would be very simple. And what I, what I love about that quote is hmm. I think there's a lot of living that gets done now on the comfort of our couches through our phones. And that's, that's that's the kind of living that Almashi is talking against, right? That if we could just explore through our phones, that would be everything. But we can't. And that exploring is getting up and getting out and being out in the world and meet and, and like meeting new people and doing new things. And that that quote I think is essential to the movie, which is like with 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 what Almashi is talking about and cartography and like discovering what has been undiscovered that idea of like we can't just do it from the comfort of our own home we have to get up and get in the nitty-gritty of it and I I and that and that happens fairly early in the movie but nothing else that was said in the movie struck with me as much as that line well wow, that's, that's I love that yeah. I love that yeah and and you know I just will throw out that I do think that there are moments within the script that that shine there is a chaotic nature to the screenplay that, and using his own word himself, it's decentralized, where there's a lot going on and a lot, a lot of cat herding you got to do in this movie, It's it seems. But Grant, quote. Yeah, uh, mine's from um, the scene where um, Almashi and Catherine are in the sandstorm, and she asks him, like, oh, uh, you know, are we safe? Are we, are we okay? And uh, you know, he says, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And she says, uh, and here's my quote, it says, yes is a comfort, Absolutely is not, and I, I just I kind of just like that. It's like, well, you overcompensated, and now I now I'm concerned. Nice, yeah. <laughs> right. nice. I like it. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah. So mine is uh, is between is between Kip and uh, Omashi, and uh, they're they're reading the the Kip your novel. A lot of layered moments to this uh, to this little scene here, but my quote my quote here is, is this, and this is uh, Omashi talking to Kip as he's reading him the novel. You're reading it too fast. You have to read Kipling slowly. 
and think about the speed of his pen. I, I loved the, the concept of that, about how two people could view a piece of literature one way and, and just based on how fast they're reading it and based on how they're using the punctuation within it. I think it speaks a little bit to this movie in itself. And uh, you know, Adam, will, will just, I'm undoubtedly going to roll your eyes at this a little bit. But I think that if you watch the English patient with an unlimited amount of patience, I think you're going to have a slightly better experience than someone who's kind of more, all right, let's get to the end a little bit. And listen, man, I can watch this movie and I can see the beauty in this movie and I can be totally comfortable with having someone rolling their eyes at me from either end. Whether it's the, dude, if you really think that this is great art, you know, give me a break, I'm rolling my eyes. Or, dude, you really want to sit through that, give me a break, give me rolling my eyes. So, like, I, I'm okay with it from either end. Um, but I, I do think that there is some beauty in how this movie is presented. There's parts of this movie that speak to me, and there's parts of the filmmaking that speak to me. And, you know, I, I thought that quote was kind of a weird art imitating life. But I do want to throw out Kip's response, which I think is amazing, too, is... The message everywhere in your book, however slowly I read it, is that the best thing for India is to be ruled by the British, which is just such a great response okay. to if you talk about how brilliant that this piece of literature was, it's like, ah, but it's kind of a white guy taking over India yeah. and making it his own. And and it says a lot to to Ray Fine's character in a sense is we talk about that ownership, that was which is kind of one of the themes of, of this movie, too, is he wants to swoop into that relationship and take it over and say that you're mine now when, you know, Kay is kind of more of a, no, nah, you're more of a vacation for me. I just thought that the little exchange of them said so much about, about where this movie was, was going and, and what it became. So I, I, I like that little exchange. So. Okay. Scene of the movie. Mine is the, uh, the bomb diffusing scene. Uh, yes. Yes. Cool one. Wow. It, is that it was, a clean it, was, it, was it was the scene that had the most tension, uh. the highest stakes. It was, it was great. Because you thought for sure Kip was going to die. Oh, I was bawling. Yeah. Not really, but like I had tears and I was... You about, were anticipating. I was yeah. about to get very mad that this movie was going to do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we do... You do criticize it from the sense of when she tells the story and it tells you exactly how it's going to go. Can we give it some credit in saying that we had the... We, we had all the things lined up for him to blow up in that pit and that he doesn't and that they tell a different story because that yeah. could have been very projected too. Yeah. Um, I thought, because I honestly, even in watching it, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure he blows up here. <laughs> like, uh, no, no, that um, was the dummy at minute 16 that blew up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, scene of the movie for me, I, 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 I liked that plane crash scene, man. I just thought that was, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit of behind the scenes scene making for me, but. Just visually, what that one? I just don't the think you'd first, ever get that. The first one, like where he crashes, no, 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 or the no, one at no. the end when no, it's the, like, the Colin Firth. Okay. Um, just think visually, we don't get that in movies anymore. We get a, a CGI version of that, and it just the the practical nature of that was just really, really cool to look at. And then everything that comes from it, him bringing her to the cave and and whatnot there. But I thought that's where, you know, the movie the movie packs its its biggest punch. If this was a three D movie, that w I would have. <laughs> <laughs> there you Shit go. my pants. Like I was that that did scare me. I like jumped back because I thought that it was coming through our TV. It didn't even have to be three D. Yeah, gotcha. You jumped anyway. Yeah. 
It's like great train robbery style going into (laughs) your uh, time machine recast. We take anyone from any any place. We plug them into the English patient, whether they like it or not. They're headed to the Tunisian desert. I recasted Ray Fiennes. I replaced him. And I replaced him with uh, Michael Fassbender. Ooh, yes. I can see that. that. I, I just I just think he brings a little bit more of an edge to the role. I like that. And you keep your uh, guy who's played a villain before, too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oscar-nominated role for a villain. I like that. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that works. Adam, what do you got for us? So uh, it probably won't surprise anybody. I, I went with replacing Kristen Scott Thomas as Catherine. Um, sure. If the role doesn't have to be British... I'm going Jessica Chastain, but if we're Ooh, like that. if we're looking mm. for somebody who's who's got who can who can sell that that British more, I'm going with Kate Blanchett. Ooh, it's a very Kate Blanchetty role. Yeah. Now that you say that, I like, know. I totally, yeah, That's great. I totally see that. Yeah, um, I love Jessica Chastain in that spot, though. That's and I think listen, the British accent. It's it's not it's not like we're having her go Shirley MacLaine and playing an, a, an Indian woman in in uh, around the world in eighty days. You know, it's it's. I think it's it's acceptable it's feasible, to have. Yeah. You but know, I, I also uh, I don't know that the role has to be British either, which is why which is why I feel like Jessica Chastain could just be an American over there. Yeah, Melissa, recast first one. Here we go. Time machine anywhere. Okay, I really didn't. This was really hard for me. I don't have anybody right off the top of my head that I would recast except one person, but I I really wouldn't want to recast her, but it's uh, the main role. How do you say her name again? Julia Binoche? Yes. With Marie Cartiard. Is that how you say oh, her name? Oh, Marianne Cotillard. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. amazing. And it would only be like if we were to remake this. That's who I would want mm. to see in it. Yeah, that's that's a great that's call. A so I recast my LVP. I'm trying to give something to this Maddox role. Even if we left the script the same, left the character the same, we're not writing into it. I wanted a, a, an actor that I thought would be a little more visually distinguished. Someone who might stand out to the viewer's eye a little better. But would also convey the vulnerability of the kill yourself reveal, which that they had at the end, which is so thrown in there. But I wanted someone that showed some vulnerability and, and showed some more um, visual distinctiveness. And I'm going to kind of play into next week's episode because I've, I've put in a character from next week's episode, um, A Beautiful Mind. Oh. And I have Paul Bettany in that role as Maddox. So we're putting Paul Bettany in as Maddox. I think he... You know, he's got that, that kind of wide-eyed look a little bit. I, I think he'd convey much more vulnerability than the generic actor they had in the Maddox spot. I think that he'd be at least be something that we would have talked about in the body this episode. So, yeah, a little I, more value. I wonder how he'll say super sternal notch. <laughs> the super sternal <laughs> notch. Super sternal notch. Okay, so before we get to the rankings and the, uh, the one to fives, we'll talk about if you just watched The English Patient, if you liked The English Patient, if you didn't like The English Patient, where we're, where we're going to steer you next. So what your recommend will be. Uh, mine is another um, Rafe Fiennes movie. It's also starring Willem Dafoe. And it also does involve Hungary at the Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Oh, I like that one. Uh, it's a, I, I love that movie. I, I think it might be my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's been on my watch list for a little while oh, here. Yeah, I mean, you I, haven't seen it. I haven't oh, seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. I'll move it up. If Wes, Ander, Wes Anderson is not my favorite, but it uh, does seem like a movie I might like. Cause I do, I do love Tenenbaums and I don't know. We'll see. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You guys, I, I, everyone's I, giving it the recommend. I, I think, here. I think Grand Budapest is his, is his best film, but. Uh, Ten of Bounds is a close second. Yeah. Melissa, you're next. Recommend. I'm going to have to say the Before Trilogy. 
all of them because you could watch wow. all of them in probably the same amount of time that this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It's like, it's, I mean, it's one of our favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah. Trilogy. Again, I'll ha- you guys are going to scream at me. Haven't seen it. Oh, man. Now, this seen is them. a movie where, and a, a good recommend, why I'm recommending it too, is like, if you want a movie that's really the, the depth and like the, the, the richness of this movie is the writing. It yes. is the script. So mm-hmm. much yeah. of this movie is like, or at least the the first one, I, the movie. I look at this trilogy as like one long movie. I, yeah. Um, it's like two people sitting on a bus, and the the only thing you're seeing is two people talking and inter- interacting with each other, and it's just so it just pulls you in, and like you would you would think just watching two people have a conversation would be so boring, and it's not. So okay, yeah. well, I love dialogue driven stuff, so that's that seems like um, that seems like something that I I just. I'm concerned. Is it going to put me in this in like a mood though? Like, is is it going to like? No. Here's the thing. The third one might. Yeah. But not the first two. The the. Okay. It's clearly like it's a it's a trilogy about like a a, a couple, but they start out as just meeting mm-hmm. on a bus and how it builds to. Oh yeah, oh, it's so good. But I have to say, it's like you could be single, you could be in a like a new relationship. You could be divorced. Yeah, yeah. You could be divorced, and you watch this, and you it resonates with you in so many different ways. That's great. Nice. So yeah. All right, moving it up the list. Moving up the list. I love it, Adam. So we mentioned uh, four weddings and a funeral earlier in the pod, and and my recommend is another Ray Fiennes recommend, and probably in most people's minds, the fifth most popular Best Picture nominee from 1994 but is one of my sleeper favorite movies of all time, and that is Quiz Show. So, so Quiz Show is directed by Robert Redford and has the same screenwriter as Donnie Brasco, Paula Tanisio. Um, and it's all about the, the game show scandal of the 1950s, and Ray Fiennes is in it as a very prominent character, but it also has John Turturro and Rob Morrow and some great character actors. Uh, Hank Azaria and David Paymer are also in it. Paul Schofield gets a nomination, which brings it back to BPC because he won for A Man for All Seasons. Um, Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. It is, in in a very real way, it is the most, I guess, forgettable of the five nominees because 94 was just a fucking amazing year for film. But this film is quietly unforgotten and it shouldn't be. It's very well made. It's very fun. And it brings you into a world that you kind of forget and um it opens up with this great montage over Mac the Knife which is just it's just it's astounding um I know it's against Four Weddings and a Funeral and Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump but Quiz Show should not be forgotten and it shows another great side of Ray Fiennes and for that reason Quiz Show is my recommend Hell yeah. Absolutely love it. Also has been sitting on my watch list. Just so, uh, I would have watched it by now if it weren't for accessibility. It just yeah. doesn't really stream anywhere. I haven't found the, haven't found the, the DVD. But um, one, I'm probably just going to pull the trigger and rent and, and get after it. I love it. I love that. Um, so uh, for my recommend, I went um, the bloated romance style of uh, movies that I love that I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> wouldn't sit and spend too much time arguing with someone if they hated, even though I've done that quite a bit here tonight. And uh, we're gonna keep those David Lean's vibes going on. We're gonna keep the uh, the big grandiose shots and the headed to locations. My recommend for the English patient is Doctor Zhivago. 
I, I know, Adam, I know I was going to get a reaction because we we did our Lawrence for Arabia episode for 1001, the tribute to, to Ian episode, and uh, which was a, a great experience for me. It was, it was a, a, a wonderful episode to check out for anyone. The English Patient is in the book of 1001 movies you must see before you die. And Dr. Zhivago's in there too. And I'm sure, Adam, you'd plug them both out, I'm guessing. I know you already said you would with Zhivago. And I'm I, 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 based on this conversation, I doubt that English Patient is staying in there. Um, Dr. Zhivago is, I think, is an important movie for people to see. If you didn't like The English Patient, you're probably not going to like Dr. Zhivago. So you can take my recommend and put it right wherever you put <laughs> The English Patient. But if you're listening to this and you did like The English Patient, I think Dr. Zhivago is a great place to go. Because it's a, um, it's a slow-plotted, proudly bloated romance that uh, is shot on location in a, in a very cold area where everybody was, was very ready to go home when it was over. But uh, it's the cut type of thing that I love. And, and if, if you like everything I just described, too, then, then come join me. So we have Dr. Zhivago. We have Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. We have the Before Trilogy. And we have quiz show. So there you go. Four, four recommends for the English patient. So here's where we get to the ranking portion of this. So um, Melissa, this is your first time in here. We do one to fives here. Five is, is the highest level. Five is like, this is best picture quality. Everything you'd expect within a best picture winner. One is like everything you'd expect in a movie that should be on worst picture cast. So um, <laughs> one to five, we do three categories. We do performances. The actor's performances on screen. We do in the middle, we do how the movie's shot, how the movie's presented to the viewer. And third is is the story, how the story's told, the themes, everything there. So we start with performances. Grant, I'm going to have you go first. Performances one to five, where are we going here? Yeah, I, I kept on bouncing between a three and a four. Come ranking time, I might end up somewhere in the middle. But I think right now I would go with a three. I don't know if this is a script issue or the, the acting issue, maybe both. It's it's hard it's hard to buy into a romance where I just didn't find it believable. Adam, I know this might surprise you with all the Chris and Scott Thomas, um, you know, hatred. I guess I spewed uh, through the pod. I give this a four though, um, because I okay. think Benoche is great, and I think Ray Fiennes and uh, Willem Dafoe do the most that they can. And and it's so funny you mentioned Maddox. I don't. I'm not. I think a lot of the the very ancillary characters are also very serviceable. Um, this honest, I think this would be a five if not for Kristen Scott Thomas. I'm still surprised. I feel this way yeah, about about that. Hate there. Um, yeah. But I but I give it a four. I think it's a very serviceable ensemble who do the most that they can with the script that they were given. Listen, I I gave it a three. Probably would have been a little lower if it weren't for the few people that we've talked about that we really liked or that I really liked. I should say. <laughs> Did we all like them? Yeah. yeah. I may surprise a bit here too, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make Adam the high man here in this category. <laughs> you had your dra- you probably won some money on DraftKings in this this past one, but um, I also have it as a three. I also grant bounce between a three and a four, and this movie maybe had a little epiphany with this because this is I always find different ways to describe these one to fives and and always kind of struggling getting through. But I think like a five to me is. The performances were unforgettable. Yeah. I think a four is the performances were memorable. I think a three is the performances were very, very good, but they weren't memorable or unforgettable. Okay. And, and I, I think that the English patient is perfectly fits in that because I don't have really much negative to say about the performances at all in anyone in this movie. I think they're all really super solid and and 
largely well cast. There's just not a whole lot about the performances that are memorable, and there's certainly nothing about them that are unforgettable. So I had that in a three slot two, but I was considering the four. Okay. I will say too, though. So, we're, so we're we're kind of all in the in the similar area there. Yeah. Next, we're going to go with how the movie shot, how it's presented on screen. So, Adam, I I went with a three, um, and there are a couple of reasons for that because I think Mangella was unproven and didn't necessarily know exactly how to shoot what he wanted to shoot. I thought the aerials, I thought everything. God, that that. That scene where they're taking photographs of the desert and when they're every time they were in a plane, I was like, this is gorgeous. This this is something that Lawrence of Arabia couldn't do because it didn't it didn't it didn't want to take place in planes. That just wasn't the movie that they were trying to tell. That was all great. But other than that, it was very formulaic, very presentational direction, and it didn't it didn't move me. Um so but but it wasn't bad. And in that way that you just described the acting, which I think is a very great way to think about it, I think it wasn't memorable, but I think it was good. So I'll give it a three. Yeah. Okay. Melissa. I said a 4.5. <laughs> oh, 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 we no, got a point no five. That's oh, okay. Great. 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 Appreciate that. <laughs> well, that should have been something I, I should have been. So now, so, so prior. Melissa, that's, that's I, okay. This is, hey, listen, this is a common, this happens often with, with uh, people being introduced to the system. <laughs> So basically what you are is you're a freezer on the fence. Yes. So you have to <laughs> you have to be a true freezer, not a fencer. Gotcha. Now. So you have okay. to so you have to is are you leaning I'm falling back. More I'm falling, falling back, back to four to, or falling forward. I'm falling back to the for floor. Adam to catch me, is what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, I got you. Um, All right. So I'm Swoon, a four. they'll catch you. There we go. I'm a gotcha. four. Okay. I Well I Yeah. I I thought it was shot beautifully and I think the things that um, are memorable to me are like the plane crash and this the the you know flying through the desert those sort of things yeah. those those are very memorable so i'm on the other side of the fence waiting to catch you and then just get, getting crickets because you went back <laughs> on the other side i'm a five um i i think that the cinematography in this movie leaves not a whole lot left to be desired for me um i think the movie's visually beautiful it's a movie you can watch on mute and have a, 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 a grand old time. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I love the on-location shit. I love the practical shit. This is a lot of stuff we don't see anymore. There's a lot of shortcuts in, in today's cinema. But we get it all in this one. The, the structure of the land and, and the map making and then, you know, comparing it to the, to the body. And that great, we laughed about the, the part of the neck that I still don't know what it's called. The super um, sternal notch. I, I loved all that stuff. I thought there was a tremendous amount of storytelling through visuals here and i eat that stuff up i hope adam catches me as well because i'm going to a four okay so um but you were on the fence you were in the point I, five zone yeah i'm, I'm okay. in the point the point five zone as well I, I i think ultimately um i i you know it does a lot of things really well is it a stone cold unforgettable i don't know if i would put it there yeah i mean the, this is the tricky part of this system is is that like from a from a bird's eye view you can sit here and say well you gave you know, you gave Bridge on the River Kwai a five and you gave English Patient a five and English Patient was mimicking this and that. It's like, no, yes, but this is a this is a box checking system. It's a case by case. It yeah. is the box checked. Yeah. Is every box checked? And for me, visually in this movie, every box is checked. Does Lawrence Arabia check six or seven more boxes on top of that? Absolutely. I mean, it's an inventive, it's a visually inventive movie. So that's not the system as it's set up, but it's a flawed system, damn it. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder who created uh, it. But yeah, well, a flawed, <laughs> a flawed creator. How the story's told, the themes. Uh, I went three. Serviceable. It's, you know, good, not great. Uh-oh, I'm afraid to throw this one to Seattle here. We're going to get some crooked numbers. Adam! I, I went two. Okay. Okay. Um, because I, I feel like... And, and I think this is I do I think this is the theater snob in me where it's like I don't need you to spoon feed me the whole story and the fact that they gave it all to me in in a, like in one line with that Herodotus thing early on I was like cool great I don't have to work that hard and I feel like if they had worked harder on the story I honestly I think if they worked harder on the story all of those numbers I gave you would be higher on I truly believe that and. The story is the weak link. I didn't totally buy a lot of it, and and for those reasons, I'm 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 going with two. Yeah, it's Melissa's LVP. It's Melissa's LVP, and we're kicking off to, to Melissa now. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say a one. Oh, whoa! Oh, there's that crooked number. There, that was. Uh, I mean, I was waiting for it. I was gonna yeah. give Big it. Swing. I was gonna give it a one point five. But no. I don't think... Fell back on the fence again. I, had, I fell back. And you know what? I, I was like, I'm going to fall back and be by myself, but I'm fine with it because I'm a strong woman and I can handle this. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just... I I don't know. I had a lot of issues with this, the, the plot and the script here. I so. love that. I love it. <laughs> That's amazing. I went out swinging. I know. I so many it. people are... You're going to have so many people going, don't ever ask her back. <laughs> Onto this again. <laughs> we are not gonna. I trust me. We are not gonna listen to them. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have a lot of people saying I'm not coming back anyway. Here with my next point, I'm, I'm giving it a four uh, for a story. Here's where I'm at with this. I think that there's a lot of between the lines storytelling with this one. I think that a lot of the characters, while Adam, you know, uh, I get your point about that. That um, the spin the bottle <laughs> statement that she makes and telling a lot of of Ray Fiennes' story arc within that relationship. I, I think that there's different ways you can look at that, though, is did she, pro- yes, did she proclaim to the viewer what's probably going to happen, or did, did he think that that's what she desires in a man, and that's how he would, that would dictate the decisions that he would make within the story. And I love the concept that all of the actions that were told in the quote-unquote De Niro storyline, the, the, the throwback, dictate the journey that's going to go on in in Hannah's life as she moves forward beyond this movie. Um, I love the gray areas in the storytelling. I love the ability of the viewer to react to the movie and make the movie its its own thing without being like purposely obscure, like a David Lynch movie type of deal where they're, you know, where we're being abstract for art's sake where I'm not even sure he knows what the fuck his movies are doing. I appreciate that this movie is visual first. I totally get if someone doesn't get this movie. I, I, I really do. Like, this is, this is a movie where I'm, I'm not going to die on the hill of it. Like, I appreciate it for what I see in it. I, I expect to be the high man when the rankings episodes come. This is like if we're going to shout out our friend um, Mike from, from Cinemus. This is like your token Cinetrust. Like, and I could even understand a Cinebust because maybe you could sit there and say like, maybe you just like it and just you like it. But this is not a Cinemust in the sense that everybody yeah. needs to see it and you should feel comfortable recommending it. Sure. But yeah, I, I give it the four in the story. It, it, che- it checks those boxes for me. And that's, that's my standpoint. But okay, so Grant, that was A. Just recap me. Uh, three, yeah, three. Uh, three four three. A three four three for Grant Adam. Uh, it was a four three two. A four three two and Melissa. Three four one one one. 
341 for Melissa, and for me, it was a 354. So there we go, the English Patient Rankings. All the Best Picture winners lined up. Where does this thing, Adam, is this going in your back quarter? It's going your front quarter, right? No? Yeah, no, so this this was interesting. And actually, this is something I was talking to Melissa about before we recorded, which is, um, so I, I I put it, and I, I got really specific, but I don't know where exactly. I put it between like 65 and 72 because I don't think it's piss poorly made, and I don't think that the themes are negative or uh, detrimental to sort of the world at large because I think when I think of the top third, I think of movies that I I just love, and there's no way I'm never going to watch these movies again, you know? And when I think of the bottom third, when I think of the Cimarins and the Americans in Paris and movies like that, it's like, nope, I never want to watch these movies again. <laughs> but, like, The English Patient isn't bad. Is it too long? Yes. Are there things I could improve upon it? Of course. But it's also not like this this black mark on filmmaking. And But it's also not my favorite. It's too long, and I... I don't eagerly reweight uh, a, a rewatch of this movie, so it's like no, I it's at the back half of my middle third of the movies. Yeah, makes sense. Grant, what do you think of that? Uh, I have it at sixty-four. Look at that. Oh, he's doing a hard I'm, number. There. I'm just putting it right there. I love it. Yeah, sixty-four. I'm not budging at all. <laughs> I love it. Oh, no. <laughs> now, Melissa, if you were to watch all of these. Oh, we have a ninety. It's going to be ninety-four after this next month. Where, where do you where do you think this is popping in? I have one, 70. one to ninety-four. Seventy. Okay. Seventy. All right. Yeah. Love like it. it. For me, like I gotta say, like I think that we're learning that, like just being in the front half alone is like pretty great. That's a pretty elite yeah. zone. These are all pretty solid movies from the from this, a general standpoint. Like I think that when we first started this, like we're like oh forty-five. They're just like front back. It's like no. I think like. I think the 40 to 45s are going to be way better movies than we expect. And I think that if The English Patient is like number 40, I think that's like a really, it should be very happy with that. And that is the number I'm looking at. Maybe a 40. Wow. Best case scenario. Best case scenario. Wow. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if it fell into the 60s. Yeah. But I, I think it has it has a ceiling of 40. And could could fall into the 60-65s. That's just from a from a naked eye standpoint. Okay. I will say that this season's rankings are going to hash out a lot of thoughts about me. That I haven't looked at it in a grand scheme, but I, I think that just off the top of my head, that's what I think. But okay. Um, okay, so as we say, this is not a sh- who should have won podcast. We do like to look at the other movies that were nominated that year. I'm going to start with the first one, and I'm going to deflect to you, Adam, on this one, because you have done a full podcast on this movie here. It's a movie I have not seen. It's from a director who I have not seen any of his movies. It's a Mike Lee movie. It's called Secrets and Lies, and here's the synopsis. Following the death of her adoptive parents, a a successful young black optometrist establishes contact with her biological mother, a lonely white factory worker living in poverty in East London. Grant, have you seen it? No. Melissa, have you seen it? Mm-mm. Adam, <laughs> take us to school on secrets and lies. So I remember watching this movie around the same time as The English Patient when I was in high school and thinking it was way too melodramatic. And again, being probably honestly way too young for this movie. And when I rewatched it for A Thousand and One by One, I was blown away by the realism, by the um, by the honest 
honest portrayals of these characters. It is, it's very uh, theatrical in the way that it, it feels like a play. It feels like we took a, like a, a play and we filmed it. And I mean that in the best way possible. I think everybody mm. in it is fantastic. I think it earned both of the Academy Award nominations it got for acting. And honestly, Timothy Spall probably should have been uh, nominated as well. I And there's a Criterion Collection version of it now. Mike Lee uh, is, I think, known for these smaller, intimate movies. He did a movie called Vera Drake about a woman who performs abortions in like the early 1900s. It's fucking, it's so hard to watch, but it's so good. And then on the flip side, he made this movie that we watched called Topsy Turvy about Gilbert and Sullivan trying to perform the Mikado. It's this ridiculous movie. It's, it's, I... As, as much as, as I was hesitant about The English Patient, I cannot recommend Secrets and Lies enough. Cool. I, I love it. Uh, I love to hear it. I want to... I've heard other things about that as far as it's like it's a... You got to see it. You got to check it out. So Secrets and Lies is going on the old list. We're going to pop off next to a movie that, Melissa, you yourself have done a podcast on recently, a Best Picture nom, alongside your husband there. And uh, it's a Cameron Crowe sports movie. Grant? I don't I disagree. <laughs> it was selected in our, our sports draft, of a sports draft episode coming up if it hasn't been out already. And that's Jerry Maguire when a sports agent has a moral epiphany and is fired for expressing it. He decides to put his new philosophy to test as an independent agent with the only athlete who stays with him and his former colleague. Melissa, take us to school on Jerry Maguire. Oh, God. Do I have to do like a... What, what no, he just did. Does it deserve to be nominated for yes, Best Picture? Or what? I really enjoyed this movie. And I, we talked about this when we did it on your podcast, but this was really like the first time that I really saw it. So, uh, yeah, this is a movie that I would watch over and over again. <laughs> Adam, worthy of a, a Best Picture nomination. Yep, yep, absolutely. And, and honestly, it is one of those... Um, We'll get into this in a moment when you mention this movie, but um, I, I honestly think it's a travesty that Tom Cruise didn't win for this. Uh, I think Tom Cruise deserves an Oscar. Man, that one. Uh, we'll, we'll go to Shine, which is the movie I haven't seen next. But um, I have a different Best Actor winner myself. But pianist David Helgoft, driven by his father and teachers, has a breakdown. Years later, he returns to the piano to... Popular, if not critical acclaim. Shine. Have you seen Shine, Adam? Yeah, I've seen it, and I, I, I no more than a week ago rewatched it because it, it is the one movie from this year that I am the most unfamiliar with. And so I popped it in and was really curious to see what my thoughts were of it. And not only do I think it's not worthy of a Best Picture nominee, but it's unfortunate. It's one of those category fraud things. Jeffrey Brush is... He's not in that much of the movie. Um, I don't know the actor's name, and I'm, uh, uh, but the guy who plays the the manager of the band in Almost Famous, um, he plays a younger version of that character, and he's in it just as much as Jeffrey Rush is. And yeah. Jeffrey Rush, it's it's again, it, it's that it's that trait where he Jeffrey Rush um, becomes the character, but the I feel like the emotional arc isn't isn't all there. And I think this movie is, when you think of Oscar bait, this is another Oscar bait kind of movie where we look at this guy overcome a struggle in his life to, to great acclaim. And it's not like it's a bad story, but I don't think it deserved all of the, uh, 
the acclaim that it got at the time. I'll defer to Adam with that one. I, I, it doesn't seem like I'm going to disagree with any of your takes on that one. We're going to end here. And now I, I guess with, with the, the acting there now, Adam, before we go to it, yeah, you're doing a little dance over there. Um, you thought that the Jerry Maguire crew should have won for that. This last viewing, I really appreciated the, again, we, you know, I, for me, I, I love the emotional arc of a character. And I think, I think Tom Cruise's Jerry Maguire goes on quite the emotional journey through that movie. Um, uh, there's there is another great performance this year that is recognized, um, and uh, I want to say that my winner I don't know if it's the same one is Billy Bob Thornton for for Sling Blade. Um, uh, honestly, him, um, him and Woody Harrelson in The People versus Larry Flint are great. Wow, okay, Woody performances. and Woody Harrelson is another guy who should have an Oscar. Well, let's be completely honest here. I mean, he's he's been he's been they've they've nominated him a few times here. He's a I hope he gets one at some point. Uh, but I, honestly, Sling Blade, man, I think should have been up for Best Picture. It, I, it's it's a dark, moody movie, man. It's not the easiest watch. I love that movie, though, man. I, it's I, it's right up there with possibly my favorite movie of the year. It's it's neck and neck with the movie we're going to talk about next. Sling Blade could easily slip into that shine role. I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll throw it out here. I think both this movie and the movie we're talking about next should have had a supporting actor nominee. Dwight Yoakam should have been up in, in Sling Blade and uh, our friend Steve Buscemi should have been up for this movie we're going to talk about next here. And that is Fargo, Minnesota car salesman Jerry Lundergaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. Yeah. Um, I don't know how William H. Macy's not up for lead in that. How is he not the lead of this movie? Token category fraud there. But, Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, Fargo obviously would have been your best picture winner, Adam, I'm guessing. Yeah. I, based on your reaction. And, and honestly, I don't even – I could spend it another, another three hours talking about Fargo. Uh, needless to say – Perhaps in the um, in the, uh, the the replay of this years from now um, we could do that. Uh, but, Ooh, that would be great. But I, I will say that this movie is – is my, my there, was a, there was actually a, a tweet today I saw – uh, list your favorite Academy Award category. And for me, forever and always, it's been best original screenplay because I feel like you find the yep. most inventive and fun movies in that category. And it's also, yeah. it's because of Pulp Fiction, but Fargo wins this two years later and it starts with a big fuck you. It starts with this, this is a true story. When in truth, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a true story yeah, at all. At and all. it's so, it's like, and I, I, I'm not going to go further than that because- the fact mm. that it starts that way is priceless. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. Uh, Grant, words of Fargo. I love this movie. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. It's um, yeah. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing I can say about it that probably hasn't been said already. It's it's great. Absolutely yeah. great. Uh, Melissa, Fargo thoughts? Love it. Adam introduced yeah. me to it. Um, I uh, and we've seen it twice together. Mm -hmm. I think, and the first time it. I don't know. I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. I think I was like just kind of like shocked the first time I saw it. And then the second time, I just remember really like appreciating it and like loving it. My eighth grade yearbook, I listed as my favorite movie, Fargo. Eighth grade. Uh, how they didn't submit me for evaluation, I don't understand. But uh, fortunately, fortunately, the uh, the 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 outcome was that I just started well, a podcast. Like, let's just keep this kid away from woodchuckers. 
Um, yeah. Man, uh, there should be a world where Steve Buscemi has an Oscar nomination, though, and I think this would have been one where he could have got it because I think he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. I don't know if anyone out there has seen Horace and Pete's incredible, incredible acting from him and, and um, Alan Alda and, and Louis C.K. There's, there's another problematic character. Get them all out there yeah, today. Throw that one in the um, bottle. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so that's it. Those are the nominees. I will, Adam. You brought up the original screenplay. I, I, as a Danny Boyle lover, I have to throw out: Was Train Spotting not up for original screenplay? This was that adapted. 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 Okay. All right. So I missed on that. But um, yeah, another movie that could have been up for best picture. Um, believe it or not. I yeah, I, I definitely that mo- that movie is probably a bit too tough to make best picture. But yeah, I, I love yeah. it. Yes, I think some co-hosts here would agree uh, from what we know. You listen to our Slumdog Millionaire oh, episode. Yeah, yeah, already, yeah, already had to turn it off and he cleaned his entire house. Yeah, so guys, we did this. I mean, I, I think I think in the spirit of of the English patient, we managed to be bloated and self-indulgent, I think. <laughs> Hopefully we were complex in moments, but you know, largely just uh bloated. Self-indulgent. And listen, at the, at, the, at, the, at the very least, we learned how to make ice cream. Yes. That's it. We got we got some. Yeah. We got way more out of the condensed milk uh, topic than I thought. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining us and spending this time. Melissa, thank you for doing the actual deep dive. These things are, they last forever and you did it. Wow. So well, welcome to the, me. welcome. Hopefully That's I could it. be back on another one one day. <laughs> Maybe after all your viewers forget that I gave it a one. <laughs> No, no, I, no, I don't please. think that you're. I don't think you're the biggest issue this, of this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the three of us have, have caused bigger problems. Thank you so much for listening. Next week's a beautiful mind. We're close, getting to the end of the season. We got the rankings coming up soon. Ooh, baby, Adam, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll uh, catch everyone next time. What is everyone talking about the English patient? It's so romantic. God, that movie stunk. I kind of liked it. No, you didn't. Elaine, Elaine, did you just see the English patient? Didn't you love it? No. How could you not love that movie? How about it sucked? (laughs) That Ray Bean, I would give up my firstborn for him. He's getting the short end of that stick. I hope you're watching the close because I can't take my eyes off the bash.